virtual annual meeting of Berkshire Hathaway. We did it in Omaha last year on short notice. We had more warning this time. And uh, uh, so we came to, uh, to uh, Los Angeles. And the reason we're doing it from here is because of the man on my left. Not because he asked for it, but because all of us wanted to do it with Charlie in, in, in here in Los Angeles. So I'll introduce the three vice chairmen of Berkshire in a minute. I'll show you the first quarter earnings. Uh, we won't take much time on that. I'll have one or two very short lessons for perhaps the new investors who are not necessarily in Berkshire Hathaway, but people who have entered the stock market in the last year. And there's, I think there have been a record number that have entered the stock market. I'll, I'll have a couple of little uh, examples for them. And then we'll swing into a Q&A um, uh, led by Becky Quick, who's looked at thousands of, of uh, questions that have been submitted to her. But more can be submitted during this meeting, and we will put up uh, uh, on camera from time to time the way you can communicate directly with her if you want to send questions in during the meeting. She got flooded with them last time and uh, she miraculously keeps sorting them out and uh, so feel free to send, send in a question and we will have a question period for about three and a half hours and then we will finally have the annual meeting uh, uh, which won't take long uh, at the end. So with that, uh, I would like to first introduce the three vice chairmen of Berkshire Hathaway. I'll tell you just a little bit about them, and then I'll have a mild surprise for you at the end, perhaps. Uh, on my left uh, is Charlie Munger, and I met Charlie 62 years ago. He was practicing law in Los Angeles. Uh, he was uh, building a house at that time, a few miles from here. And 62 years later, he's still living in the same house. Now, that was kind of interesting because I was buying a house just a few months before, 62 years ago, and I'm still living in the same house. So you've got a couple of fairly peculiar guys just to start with in terms of their uh, love affair with their, their homes. Uh, and Charlie, Charlie and I uh, hit it off immediately. And uh, uh, I would say he's, I, he's probably the vice chairman in charge of culture, among other things. But uh, if I ever want to get questions about where True North is, I talked to Charlie, and he has been an enormous uh, help. He's done it with a lot fewer hours and a lot less talking and everything that I have, but he's contributed in an incredible way to, uh, to Berkshire. Uh, so Charlie's been out here in Los Angeles for 60-plus years. Uh, on my right, your left, I have uh, uh, the vice chairman in charge of everything except insurance and investments, Greg Abel. Greg was born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta. He's Canadian, plays hockey, his eight-year-old plays hockey. And uh, uh, 
he came to the uh, United States uh, sometime after he graduated from college in Canada. Uh, and he is in charge of a business uh, which has uh, well over 150 billion in sales and employs 200 and more than 250,000, probably 275,000 people, and uh, uh, does a much better job at doing that than I was doing previously. And uh, on my far left, you're right. You're right. Uh, we have a, a Jeep Jane, and the Jeep was born and raised in India, and uh, graduated from college there. And I met a Jeep on a Saturday in 1986, and I'd been in the insurance business, Berkshire had been in the insurance business for quite a while, and I was kind of stumbling around in various ways, and a Jeep came to the office, and Saturday I was opening the mail, and, and I said, uh, how much do you know about insurance? And he said, nothing. And I said, well, nobody's perfect, and let's, let's uh, talk about it some. And uh, by the end of the morning, I knew I had somebody that was going to build a great insurance business. And starting from that point, this improbable little company in Omaha uh, became the largest property casualty company in the world in terms of net worth. It writes risks that... It writes risks, writes risks occasionally in a 24-hour period that other companies simply couldn't take on themselves. They'd have to assemble other people. It would take them a long time to come to a decision. That was very important at various times in the past. It's not so important now. But he's built an incredible, the world's leading property casualty insurance company. Uh, so here we have Charlie from L.A., uh, 60 some years. We've got Greg from Canada. We've got Ajit from India. And the one thing in common that these three fellows have, aside from working for Berkshire and doing a sensational job, the one thing in common is that uh, uh, at one time or another, uh, for some extended period, they lived within a mile of me in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, uh, Charlie, in 1934, uh, moved about 100 yards away from where I now live and went through high school and eventually went in the service uh, and uh, knows the neighborhood as well as I do. Uh, uh, went to the same grade school my kids went to and so on. Uh, uh, Greg uh, spent significant time in living in Omaha lived about five or six blocks from me, and uh, uh, now lives in Des Moines. Uh, and Ajit was in Omaha about a mile away for a couple of years. So uh, we uh, started in very different places and, and sort of came together and now go our separate ways, but it's all worked very well. Uh, uh, I would, uh, uh, and you'll hear from me, I urge you to, Send questions if you're saying that you can direct them to me or you can direct them to uh, any one of the other three. And uh, it will be a big relief to me if you direct a fair number to the other people. So uh, uh, we, uh, this morning, as we always do, uh, we always do it on Saturday, we published our, uh, our, our 10Q 
which gave the quarterly earnings. It's up on our website, BerkshireHathaway.com. And uh, it's very interesting. We, we, we put these out on, on uh, Saturday morning. That's not because the media likes us to do it that way. It's not because the analysts like to do it that way. But we want to give you the maximum time to digest an awful lot of information that's in that 10Q. Uh, it, it can't be summarized uh, in a perfect way. We'll give you some summary figures. But, but uh, if you're really a student of the place, and most, most, of, most of our investors buy because they, they simply have faith in, in these other three fellows to do a good job, uh, and they, that's not a misplaced faith. Uh, but if you really enjoy going into the details and you want to understand the nuts and bolts of, of Berkshire Hathaway's various operations, uh, you should read that 10Q. And uh, it'll, it'll take you, uh, it may take you a couple of hours. I mean, it's not a small investment of time, but it's got a lot of information about all our various businesses. And uh, for those of you who are business students of a sort, uh, I recommend you go, you go to it. Uh, uh, the summary figures you see here, which are the ones we put in our press release, uh, uh, show kind of an interesting pair of numbers. I mean, down there at the bottom, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, last year. When you see those brackets around numbers, you got you know you got to start worrying. And uh, first quarter. We actually showed a loss of almost $50 billion. I never thought I'd ever see a figure like that. And I was thinking back. I, I, I was trying to remember whether I, I'd gone on vacation during that quarter and turned things over to the other guys or what. But I checked the calendar, and that was me. Uh, and uh, uh, that uh, figure this year is a positive figure of $11.7 billion. Uh, and neither figure... Uh, is very meaningful in itself. Uh, the accounting standards board a few years ago for many, 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 many years uh, unrealized gains or losses of a company like Berkshire were uh, made adjustments to the net worth of Berkshire, but they did not run through earnings. And a few years ago, uh, the rule was changed so that every time well, the stocks go up or down, uh, it goes through our earnings account. So uh, in the first quarter of last year, when stocks went down a lot, uh, we had a huge sum of unrealized. Well, it was a reduction of unrealized gains largely. And when you start saying things like that, you start losing people. But uh, uh, that item was the mild plus this year, but if you if we reported earnings daily, you would see earnings one day of three billion, next year day of minus two billion, and it, it's it's an accounting treatment that we don't think is particularly appropriate, but but it's required, and we explain very carefully, both in our press releases that we try to explain, and and I try to write in my letter and explain why I'd, I don't think that's the way to look at Berkshire. We think over time that we will have investment gains for reasons I lay out in my letter. Uh, over a period of time, the companies we own stock in retain earnings, and, uh, and they, uh, 
they use those reinvested earnings usually to our benefit, and that shows up in capital gains someday. But reported earnings for a company that has a lot of common stocks, marketable stocks like ours, uh, you don't want to look at that final line, and uh, uh, you do want to look at the operating earnings line. Now, I would say that that uh, uh, if you had taken the first two months of, of last year and compared to the first two months of this year, those figures would have been quite comparable. But, of course, in March of 2020, the economy was shut down, in effect. I mean, it was a self-induced uh, uh, recession and, and an abrupt one, very abrupt. And so uh, uh, the economy went off a cliff in, in, in March. It was... It was, uh, it was uh, resurrected uh, in an extraordinarily effective way uh, by Federal Reserve action and, and, uh, and later uh, uh, on the fiscal front by Congress. And we'll get into that later. But uh, uh, the figure, figure you see uh, that... Uh, it, 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 the difference was March, basically, uh, the two. And our businesses have done, uh, we'll get into more specifics later, but our, our business has done really quite well. This has been a very, very, very unusual uh, recession in that it's, it's been localized as the industry uh, to an extraordinary extent. And uh, right now, business is really very good in great many segments of the economy, which we'll talk about later, but there's still problems if if you're in the if you're in the few few types of business that have really been decimated, you know, such as international air travel or something of the sort. So with that, we'll we'll go back to the figures later on. Uh, perhaps in some of the questions. I would like to uh, just go over two items that I would like particularly new entrance to the stock market to uh, ponder just a bit before they try and do 30 or 40 trades a day uh, in order to, to profit what, from what looks like in a very uh, easy game. So uh, I would like to uh, go to slide L1. So put that up. And uh, these, I, on March 31st, I ran off a list of the 20 largest companies in the world by stock market value. And those names, good many of which you'll be familiar to, but they were led by Apple at slightly over $2 trillion. And uh, they went down to the number 20th was worth $330-odd billion. But those are the 20 largest companies in the world by market value on March 31st. Now, if I had a little, I was hoping I could get a little uh, quiz machine so I could have everybody weigh in on this answer and we could flash it up a little later, but, but proved technically impossible for, but what I would like you to do is look at that list. Um, you know, starts off with Apple. Saudi Aramco is a pretty kind of a specialized country as a company. It's, it's 
I don't know whether it's 95% owned by the government or what, but, but it's, it's essentially a country that's for sale there, <laughs> in terms of that business. I, uh, but the, the top um, of the top six companies, five of them are American. So when you hear people say that America hasn't done, you know, it's, got all, it's not working very well or something of the sort, you know, in the whole world, uh, of the six top companies in value, five of them are in the United States. And if you think about it, you know, we talked a little about this last year, but in 1790, we had one half of 1% of the world's population. And a little less, we had 4 million people, 3.9 million people. 600,000 of them were slaves. Ireland had more people than the United States had. Russia had five times as many people as the U.S. Ukraine had twice as many people as the United States. Uh, so here we were. But what, what did we have? We had a map for the future, an aspirational map, that uh, somehow now only 200 and, well, after the Constitution, 232 years uh, later, uh, leaves us uh, with five of the top six companies in the world. You know, it's not an accident. And it's not because we were way smarter, uh, way stronger, you know, anything of the sort. We had good soil, had decent climate. But so some of those other countries I named. Uh, and uh, the system has worked unbelievably well. Just imagine thinking of five of the top six companies in the world ending up with a country that started with a half of 1% of the population. Uh, just a few hundred years ago. But what I would like you to do is look at that list for a minute or two, if you want to, and, and then make an estimate, make your own guess. How many of those companies are going to be on the list 30 years from now? Here they are, these powerhouses. And how many would you guess are going to be on the list? Well, you know, it's not going to be all 20. It may not even be all 20 today or tomorrow. <laughs> uh, uh, this was March 31st. Uh, but what would you guess? And think about that yourself. Would you put on five, eight? Well, whatever it would be, I would now invite you to look at slide two or L2, which goes back a little more than 30 years and look at the top 20 from 1989. And if you look at the top 20 from 1989, there's two things that we should grab your interest, at least two. None of the 20 from 30 years ago are on the present list. None. Zero. It, uh, there were then six U.S. companies on the list, and their names are familiar to you. It, uh, uh, we have... Uh, General Electric, we have Exxon, we have IBM Corp. I mean, these are, they're still around. Uh, Merck is down there at number. None made it to the list 30 years later, zero. And I would guess that very few of you, when I asked you to play the quiz a little, uh, a few minutes ago, would have put down zero. And I don't think it will be zero. But it is a reminder of what extraordinary things uh, can happen. Things that seem obvious to you. Uh, uh, Japan had had this wonderful bull market for a very long time, so you had a number of Japanese companies on the list. 
Uh, today there there are none, uh, and uh, the United States had the six. Now we have thirteen, uh, but they aren't the same six. Uh, I would invite you to think about one other thing as you look at this list. 1989 was not the dark ages. I mean, we weren't just discovering capitalism or anything else. And people thought they knew a lot about the stock market and the efficient market theory was in. And there were, it, was not a, it was not a backward time. And if you look, the top company at that time had a market value of $100 billion, $104 billion. So the largest company in the world of title in just shade over 30 years has gone from 100 billion to 2 trillion. At the bottom, the number 20 has gone from 34 billion to something a little over 10 times that. Well, that tells you something about what's happened with equality, which is a hot subject in, in, in this country. It tells you a little bit about inflation, but this was not a highly inflationary period as a whole. But it tells you that that capitalism has worked incredibly well, especially for the capitalists. And uh, uh, it's a it's a pretty astounding number. Do you think you, you think it could be repeated now that that 30 years from now that you could take two trillion for Apple and <laughs> multiply any company and come up with 30 times that for the leader, you know, it, it seems impossible, and maybe it is impossible, but I just, we were just as sure of ourselves as investors and Wall Street was in 1989 as we are today, but the world can change in very, very uh, dramatic ways, and I'll just give you one other example you might ponder. This is when you start feeling too sure of yourself. One thing it shows, incidentally, is that that uh, it's a great argument for for index funds. Is that uh, you know it, the main thing to do was to be aboard the ship, you know, a ship. You know, they were all going to a, a better promised land. You just didn't know which one was the one they necessarily get on. But but you couldn't help but do well if you just had a diversified group of equities. Uh, U.S. equities would be my preference, but uh, to hold over a 30-year um, period. But if you thought you knew a lot about which ones to pick or the person that you had hiring, you were paying a lot of money to, had all these ideas, and uh, uh, they could tell you their best ideas in 1989 did not necessarily do that well, although overall equities were absolutely uh, the place to be. Um, secondly, uh, people get enormously attracted to various industries. I mean, they think if you, they think if you know, if a company says it's in the XYZ industry and that's a popular one, you can, you can sell IPOs, you can, you can sell SPACs, you can, people uh, disregard sales numbers, earnings numbers. It's just, you know, it's the place to be. So, um, Berkshire Hathaway, where was the place to be in 1903 when my, uh, my dad was born in 1903, but that wasn't really that big of news, but, but and it wasn't big news that actually Henry Ford was starting the Ford Motor Company. He'd failed a couple of times before, but he was about to change the world. I mean, the, 
the auto, when you think about everything, we've got a great auto insurance company. But if there weren't any autos, we wouldn't have Geico. Uh, the, but it, it transformed the country. Uh, and then report brought in the $5 daily wage, and that was a huge thing. Assembly lines, everything, autos came along. So let's just assume that you had seen a quick glance back in 1903 of all the interstate highways, 290 million vehicles on the road in the United States, uh, you know, everything about it. And you say, well, this is pretty easy. It's going to be cars. It's going to be autos. Well, uh, Berkshire, uh, uh, let's see what we've got up there. Yeah, no, say where you were. Go back. <laughs> I don't want to change slides yet. The, uh, go back to the L's. Uh, the Berkshire by accident, well, we own a company called Marmon. We bought it from the Pritzker family some years ago. The Pritzkers uh, had built this business from many, many, many companies that they had acquired. And the name of their company was Marmon. And uh, I don't know exactly why Jay and Bob decided to name it Marmon, but, but they did own a company called Marmon. And uh, the Marmon... Uh, company at uh, well, getting slightly ahead of me on the slides again, but that's okay. Uh, uh, the uh, we called it. Uh, the, it was they owned this company, Marmon, which in 1911 had been a uh, uh, the company whose car won the first Indianapolis 500. Uh, Maybe that's why they called it Martin. They were proud of the fact that the company in 1911 named the first, uh, won the first Indianapolis 500. It also was the company that invented the rearview mirror. I'm not sure whether that was a big contribution to society and certainly around your household. <laughs> rearview mirror, you don't want to emphasize too much. But but they, uh, uh, the car that was entered in the Indianapolis 500, the, the guy who normally sat next to the driver and looked backwards to tell what what the competitors were doing. He was sick, so they, they invented the rear-view mirror. So uh, let's just assume that you decided that autos were this incredible thing, and someday there'd be an Indianapolis 500, and someday they'd have rear-view mirrors on cars, and someday 290 million cars would be buzzing around the United States, car, or autos, or on the county trucks there. Uh, and so I decided to look at the history and I thought I'd put up the list of auto companies from over the years. And uh, I was originally going to put up just the ones that were the M's so I could get them on one slide. But when I went to the M's, it went on and on and on. So I just decided to put up the ones that started with M-A. And as you can see, there were almost 40 companies that went into the auto business, just starting with M.A., including our little, our Marmon there in the middle column, and uh, which uh, uh, lasted for a while, quite a while. But, uh, it was selling cars in the 1930s were really quite special. Uh, but in any event, there were at least 2,000 companies 
that entered the auto business because it clearly had this incredible future. And, of course, you remember that in 2009, there were three left, two of which went bankrupt. So there is a lot more to picking stocks than figuring out what's going to be a wonderful industry in the future. Uh, uh, The Maytag company put out a car. Allstate put out a car. DuPont put out a car. I mean, there was a Nebraska motor company. Everybody started car companies, just like everybody's starting something now that can be where you can get money from people. But there were very, very, very few people that picked the winner or got the opportunity for at Ford Motor, Henry Ford had a few partners, and he really didn't like them, so he figured a way to buy them out. That was uh, sort of the uh, that was one, one it was sort of the beginning of the uh, the auto finance. Uh, that's a long story. We won't get into that. But uh, but but you couldn't buy into Ford Motor, and of course General Motors uh, became the the dominant company. Uh, uh, finally, when Henry Ford did not really make the Shift from the Model T to the Model A very did not work very well. Uh, so I just want to tell you, it's not as easy as it sounds. And with that, uh, we will go to uh, uh, Becky Quick, and, and uh, she will ask any of the four of us questions she has selected and which we don't. Uh, she doesn't share with us, and uh, and. Uh, we will do this uh, for a, a considerable period of time. You can be sending in questions to her, and then later on, after about three and a half hours, we will have the annual meeting, which won't take long. So, Becky, over to you. Thanks, Warren, and uh, hello to everybody. Um, this first question that came in came in from Andy Sees. He says he's the owner of not nearly enough B shares. He says, Mr. Buffett, you're well known for saying to be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. But by all appearances, Berkshire was fearful when others were most fearful in the early months of COVID. Dumping airline stocks at or near the low, not taking advantage of the fear, gripping the market to buy shares of public companies at exceptional discounts and being hesitant to buy back significant amounts of Berkshire stock at very attractive prices. I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts surrounding this time and how Berkshire approached its decision-making, specifically after it was assured through the CARES Act that the government would provide a robust backstop to the financial markets. Well, of course, until until both monetary and fiscal policy kicked in, uh, well, you knew we had an incredible problem. and that our, I am just as Charlie as the chief culture officer. I'm, I'm the chief, chief risk officer of Berkshire. That's, that's my job. It, uh, uh, we hope we do well, but we want to be sure we don't do terribly. Uh, but we didn't sell a uh, substantial amount. I mean, we, we're a company with six, probably $700 billion worth of businesses, some we own in, in their entirety, some we own a, a piece of. And I don't know whether we were sellers of maybe 1%. Of, of the value of all the businesses we had at that period. But the airline, it's just kind of interesting with the airline businesses in particular, and then I'll get to what was done in fiscal and monetary policy. But we had a few people, various subsidiaries of Berkshire, that wanted to go in for help from the government. 
and uh, uh, in some cases they had minority shareholders owned a few percent. And they said, "Well, this you know we're going to get killed by what's happening uh, when uh, uh, with the regulations that are being put out and we're stopping the economy." And and they said, "Everybody's going in for them, and why don't we go in?" I said. Uh, you know, <laughs> Berkshire can handle it. This is for people that can't handle what's happening, and we, so we're not applying. But the airlines were the most prominent beneficiaries of of, uh, of what took place immediately. They got 25 billion uh, initially, most of which went to the big four airlines, and some of which went in as grants, not not loans, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I think that was fine public policy. I think it, I was wishing it could go to every restaurant and dry cleaner and every small business that really was out of business and had no no. I mean, they they were they were they were they were made toast of, you know, basically. Uh, but the airlines clearly, what happened was not their fault in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't like two thousand eight nine when people blamed the banks and hated to see them help. So it was now airlines. Operate in bankruptcy, so it isn't like that. Uh, three of the four big ones you know, went through bankruptcy and within the previous ten or fifteen. So the airlines were kind of used to operating in bankruptcy. They would have kept operating, but it was perfectly proper for the airlines to be helped. The entire airline business, you know, you look at these figures of two trillion for Apple and so on. The entire big four airlines. They were they sold for about a hundred billion dollars almost. I mean it's it's a very very small combined they wouldn't come close to making the the cut. I mean they wouldn't be in the top fifty. Uh, so anyway, uh, they went into the government. They needed government help, or they needed or they could, would go bankrupt some of them. And uh, and uh, uh, really the Congress, but Steve Mnuchin too. Uh, that they decided they deserved the help, which I, I, I do not quarrel with at all. But imagine if Berkshire was the 10% holder, which they had been of everyone in the airlines. They said, let's take it up in Berkshire. <laughs> I mean, it's, it'd be like one of our, uh, they would have had, they might have very well had a very, very, very different result if they'd had a very, very, very rich shareholder that owned 8 or 9%. At, uh, and they didn't have that, uh, you know, when they went in. <laughs> so our, you might not have gotten the same result. In fact, I would, I would think you probably wouldn't. I mean, I can just see the headlines now. I mean, they, you know, because you've seen the headlines on some companies that took 100 million or two, you know, and really didn't need it, and some of them gave it back, and most of them gave it back. Uh, but you were look, you're actually looking at it probably at a different result than if we'd kept our stock. But in any event, an industry that was really selling for less than $100 billion uh, lost a significant amount of money. They lost prospective earning power. I mean, right now, you know, international travel has not come back. But I would say overall, too, that the economic recovery has gone far better than you could say with any assurance. So we... Uh, we didn't like having as much money as we had in banks at that time, so I, I cut back some of the bank investment. But basically, our net sales were about 1% or 1.5%. And, and looking back, it you know, would have been better, better to be buying, but, but I, do not consider it, I do not consider it a great moment in Berkshire's history, but I also don't. Uh, we've got more net worth than any 
any company in the United States under accounting principles, and we've got we've got six or seven hundred billion of generally good businesses, and uh, and uh, I think as I think I think the airline business has done better because we've sold, and I wish them well. But I still uh, I still wouldn't want to buy the <laughs> buy the airline business international. Uh, people really want to they want to travel uh, for personal reasons and. and uh, uh, business travel is, is a tougher thing, and we've got a big exposure to business travel, of course, through the fact that we own 19% of American Express, and we own Precision Cast Parts, which services the they are business very dependent. So we've we've still got a big investment in uh, air travel, uh, a big commitment to it. But but uh, we wish the big four the best, and and I think their managements have done a very good job during this period. Um, more specifically beyond the airlines, though, just the idea, and this came from several questions, too, including one from Chris Blaine, just you spent years accumulating cash, insisting you had your elephant gun ready. The March 2020 listed equity sell-off came with promises from the U.S. government that they would do what it takes, yet you sat on your hands. Please help me understand what I missed. I didn't get quite the last part. What was the final question? Just please help me understand what I missed. Uh, why why didn't you use more of the cash at hand? Oh, well, we, we have about, as in, our cash on hand has been about 15% of our our values of our businesses. And uh, that's, that's a healthy chunk. And I'd say it'll never get below $20 billion, but we're, we're going to raise that number because it's just the size and importance of Berkshire. It, it, uh, but we... We uh, we could have deployed uh, fifty or seventy-five billion, uh, and right before the Fed Act, I mean, we hit a point uh, where the calls were two calls came in, uh, but there was two or three days. I mean, nothing could happen. I mean, when when Jay Powell acted as he did, that was incredibly important. I mean, I shouldn't say the Fed acted as they did, but they they moved with speed and a decisiveness on March 23rd that changed the situation where the economy had stopped. The government bond market was even sun, sun, disrupted. Berkshire Hathaway probably could not have gone out with a debt offering uh, the day before. Uh, there was... Uh, it didn't get a lot of publicity time, but there was a run on money market funds, a very substantial run. And uh, if you look at the numbers, daily numbers on that, it was a repeat of September 2008. And this time, I give great credit to what Bernanke and Paulson did, but this time, the Fed knew that saying whatever it takes and saying it and demonstrating it, which they did on March 23rd, they took a market where Berkshire couldn't sell bonds on the day before and turned it into one where Carnival Cruise Lines or something could sell it to a day or two later. It, and there was, you know, it's record issuance of corporate debt and uh, companies losing money, companies who were closed, whatever. It, 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 was, it was the most dramatic move that you can imagine. And, and at the time, as I remember the chairman saying, uh, you know, how about a little help on the on the fiscal front, and then Congress acted very, very big again. In 2008 and 9, they argued about, you know, 
we don't want to give any money to those dirty banks and all that sort of thing. But this time, there, there really wasn't anybody to blame. So uh, they, had, they saw what was necessary, and Congress responded. So you had fiscal and monetary policy that responded in a way that was incredible, and it did the job. And it did, a, it did. I think it did a better job than, than either the Fed or the Treasury or anybody expected. I mean, this this economy right now is 85 percent of it is is running in super high gear, and uh, people can't, uh, you know. And and you're seeing some inflation and all of that. It, it it's responded in an incredible way, and we learned something out of 2008 and nine, and then we applied. But that, I don't think it was a sure thing that would happen. And the one thing about Berkshire is we never, we never want, we don't want to depend on anybody. We're not a bank. We can't go to the Federal Reserve if we need money. And we've got to, we've got to be sure that under any circumstances, any circumstances, we can't solve nuclear war and maybe we can't, you know. But you know, Blanche Dubois, if you remember, and the streetcar named Desire, said, I depend on the kindness of strangers. You can't depend on the kindness of your friends if things really stop. I mean, I've seen that in several different places. And we were started, we, we were seeing it on March, the middle of March. Everybody was drawing down the credit lines. The banks did not expect that. They, they just weren't sure they were going to be able to draw it on their credit lines 10 days later. And so they just drew them down and they would, took the money out of money market funds. We got very prompt. I give great credit on both the monetary and fiscal side of what was done, but I didn't think it was a sure thing that would happen, and I didn't know how it would be implemented. And it's, it's worked. I think it's worked better than just about anybody has expected. Uh, and I think, well, you're seeing it now. You know, Charlie's got some views on this too, so we, we shouldn't leave him out of it. Well. It's crazy to think anybody's going to be smart enough to husband money and then just come out on the bottom tick in some crazy crisis and spend it all. There always is some person that does that by accident. But that's too tough a standard. Anybody expects that of Berkshire Hathaway is out of his mind. Yeah, Charlie and, Charlie and I never were very good at dancing, but we really can't do that dance. <laughs> no, no, we can't. By the way, almost nobody else can either. Not with tens of billions yeah. or hundreds of billions. But it's worked out well. I, we forgot to show one of the financial sides, actually. If you go back to the the balance sheet, but we uh, we did buy in in the first. Uh, you'll see the shares outstanding if we go back to to uh, what is it E three the E two. Slide huh? E two. Yeah. Pardon me. I think it's E two. Well. The balance sheet, yeah, there, there, there it shows the shares outstanding at the bottom, and we have, we have, uh, we spent about 25 billion in the first quarter and more money since, and we, it's the best thing. We we can't buy companies as cheap as we can buy our own, and we can't buy stocks as cheap as we can buy our own. So, uh, uh, and we've been able to do that with a fair amount of money. But looking, I, I mean, if you, uh, you know. Definitely, we could have done better things. <laughs> we we would have sold the we would have sold airlines and cut back on banks, regardless whether we should have bought something else at the same time. Is another question. 
This question comes from a long-term shareholder who's been here for more than 25 years. His name's Ben Knoll. He's from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he says, Mr. Munger and Mr. Buffett, after a 15-year period of market underperformance, you're cautious about predicting Berkshire being able to outperform the market in the future. Given this, what do you see as the arguments for longtime shareholders to continue holding their stock versus diversifying their risk across an index? Charlie, you want to answer that? Well, sure. Well, I personally prefer holding Berkshire to holding the market. So because I'm quite comfortable holding Berkshire. I, I think our businesses are better than the average in the market. Is it because you don't think the market values it fairly? Well, these are just accidents of history, and things are fluctuating at all times. But in, on a composite basis, I'd, I'd bet on Berkshire over the market. That's assuming we're all dead. Hey, I recommend I, I recommend the S and P 500 index fund and that for uh, a long, long time to people. And uh, I've never recommended Berkshire to anybody uh, because I I don't want people to buy it because they think I'm <laughs> tipping them into some side. Never. I mean, no matter what I was selling for. And uh, uh, and you know, I I made it public. I, you know, I'm. On my death, there's a there's a fund for my uh, then widow, and 90% uh, will go into an S&P 500 index fund and 10% of treasury bills. And, uh, on the other hand, I'm very happy having my future contributions to a group of charities that will be spread over 12 years or so after my death uh, to stay in Berkshire. I think the odds are uh, Berkshire... Berkshire Berkshire is, um, yeah, I, I like it, but I'm not, uh, I, do, I do not think uh, the average person can pick stocks. We happen to have a large group of people that didn't pick stocks, but they picked Charlie and me to manage money for them 50 or 60 years ago. And, and uh, uh, so we have a very unusual group of shareholders, I think, who, who look at Berkshire as a lifetime savings vehicle. And uh, one they don't have to think about, and uh, uh, one that they'll look, you know, if they don't look at it again for 10 or 20 years, that, that uh, will have taken care of the money reasonably well. But that, I wouldn't argue that the S&P 500 over time, I would, I, I, perfect, I, I like Berkshire, but I, uh, uh, I, I think that the a person who doesn't know anything about stocks uh, at all, and doesn't have any special feelings about Berkshire, I think they ought to, they ought to buy the S&P 500 index. As a follow-up to that, Gerald Silver writes in, he says, the trustees of your estate to, um, I believe you've directed the trustees of your estate to invest substantial assets into the index fund. Isn't that a vote of no confidence to your managers? Well, no, it, it, because it, it, we're talking about way less than 1% of my estate. <laughs> and. Uh, one thing I'm going to do, incidentally, uh, I mean, all rich people get advised by their lawyers, set up trusts so that nobody can see your will and all that sort of thing. My will is going to be public record, and you can, you'll can you be able to check at some point when I'm telling you the truth about what this is going to get done. But 99.7% uh, roughly uh, of my estate uh, will either go to philanthropies or to the federal government. And, and uh, uh, before it does it, I think... I think Berkshire is a very happy, a very good thing to hold. But for a given individual, particularly my wife, 
I just think that 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 having a a tiny fraction, that, which is all it takes for her to do very well for the rest of her life, uh, I just I think that the best thing to do is buy buy 90 percent in an in an S and P 500 index fund. Now the index fund people naturally have started over the time they they market more more and more products that are that go to other in, indices and everything. So they're really starting to say to the to the American public, they're saying, well, you can pick what continent to invest in, or you can pick what industry, and we'll sell you something for that. And when they just have gotten through telling them, you know, you really don't know anything about stocks, <laughs> just buy the whole index. So uh, uh, so I named the 500 index as one. Uh, but it's it's a tiny portion, but it'll be, it'll be her livelihood, and she'll have all the money she needs and way beyond it, and that's that. And But the... I don't. I don't mind having the 99.7 percent, large portion of it. If, if, assuming that laws are the same as now, go to philanthropy to be uh, uh, to be kept in Berkshire until they finally are disposed of. This question comes from Andrew Dixon in in the UK. He says, "My question is in relation to the oil and gas business and your purchase of Chevron stock." When being asked a question on tobacco stocks in 1997, you mentioned that individuals and companies occasionally have to draw moral lines about what they're willing to do. You stated at the time that you were not comfortable in making a big commitment in tobacco stocks and that you were uncomfortable about their prospects. Charlie has also referenced passing up on a private tobacco deal that you both knew was a sense, yet you both have no regrets in saying no to the transaction. I'm not suggesting that the oil and gas business has the same known negative externalities as cigarettes. They do not. With tobacco, the cause and effect relationship between the products and cancer is direct, obvious, and measurable. With hydrocarbons, the societal costs and benefits are far more complex to evaluate. However, an increasing portion of society is drawing their lines in such a way that their painting does not include hydrocarbons, period. My question is, has the alarmism from the climate community now become pervasive across society to the extent it has become irrational? Have we built our own unrealistic consensus on the pace of change achievable with regards to the transition to greener energy sources to the extent that this is becoming an overly expensive tax worn by the current younger generation? Can we gather from your purchase of Chevron stock that you do not believe the howling from society, regulators and politicians will impair the prospects of hydrocarbons and Chevron for that matter in the next 10 years? Can investors still assume an oil and gas business that finds and produces oil at low cost per barrel can generate a sufficient return on capital for a long time to come? Well, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll give you a 10-word answer to that. <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember all the questions that were there, but I would say that people that are on the extremes of both sides are, are a little nuts. <laughs> I, I, I would hate to have all the hydrocarbons banned in three years or, you know, you wouldn't want a world, it wouldn't work. And on the other hand, you know, what's happening will be adapted to over time, just as we've adapted to, to all kinds of things. I do not think, I, I'm, I'm interested in that quote from 1997, because, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. We have no problem owning Costco or Walmart, you know, and, and a substantial number of their stores and, uh, you know, they, they sell cigarettes. It's a big item. You know, it's, just, it's it's something that brings people in. They know the price of cigarettes, and and uh, you know, and they put them up front. And uh, so we don't. Uh, it's a very tough situation. We made that decision a long time ago when we went to Memphis, 
and and we looked at a business that was a very very good business and it was much less harmful uh, at least from everything I could find out uh, it was much less harmful than smoking tobacco chewing tobacco was and these were decent people and they were running a legal business and they all chewed tobacco themselves so they, they, they were and they, they told me that their mother was a hundred and chewing tobacco and all these things but Charlie and I did go down in the lobby of that hotel and we just said to ourselves this is probably the best business we've ever seen uh, and I called my then son-in-law Alan Greenberg and he'd studied chewing tobacco and its effects when he was working for uh, a nature related organization and and we decided not to do it, but you know, would we? You know, I see. I used to see ads in our paper from financial companies where I knew they were terrible. You know, and I, it's it's a very tough thing to decide whether you get in or out of a business. And it's a very tough time to decide what what companies benefit society more than others. I mean, it's. I don't know whether. I think Chevron's benefited society in all kinds of ways, and I think it continues to do so, and I think we're going to need a lot of hydrocarbons for a long time, and we'll be very glad we've got them. But I do think that the world's moving away from them, too, and, and I, that could change. Uh, I, I, I don't like making the moral judgments on stocks in terms of actually running the businesses, but there's something about every business that if you knew what you wouldn't like. Uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, meat packers or anything. Have you ever gone through a meat packing? <laughs> you know, it, there's, it, it, if you expect perfection, you know, in your spouse or in your friends or in companies, you're not going to find it. And, and uh, what you elect to do yourself, if you own an index fund, you're going to own Chevron. And, believe me, Chevron is not an evil company in the least. <laughs> and, 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 uh, I have no compunction about owning, in the least about owning Chevron. And if if we own the entire business, I wouldn't I would not feel uncomfortable about being in that business. Charlie. Well, I agree. I, you know, you can imagine two things: a young man marries into your family. He's a English professor at, say, Swarthmore, or he's a he works for. Chevron, which would you pick? Because I don't see. I want to admit I'd take the guy from Chevron. <laughs> well, I hope your daughters agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, on the other side of that argument, because there were lots of emails that came in both on both sides of these ESG questions. Um, this one comes from Christina Galagos, who's been a shareholder since 2018, and she says, on items two and three of the proxy materials, the board recommended voting against on the shareholder proposal regarding the reporting of climate-related risks and opportunities, as well as on the shareholder proposal regarding diversity and inclusion reporting. Berkshire is such a force for good when it comes to financial literacy and empowerment through wealth creation. Why not be a force for good and an example when it comes to these very two important, two very important issues? Please share with us more about the against recommendation. Well, I think maybe Greg can talk a little bit about about uh, what Berkshire has done as opposed to uh, uh, in, in in terms to, of the environmental. I, I would say this: it's very interesting. With everything that's being, we, I think we have over a million shareholders. I mean, you can't be 100% sure of because of street name and duplicate accounts and all that sort of thing. But it certainly seems very, very likely. 
uh, I've had, and I get the letters that are written to me. I, I don't think I've had, uh, I don't think I've had three letters in the last year or anything on, uh, from, from shareholders. Now, I have them, and our vote on this, as you'll see later, is that, that overwhelmingly the people that bought Berkshire with their own money voted against those propositions. The, most of the votes for it were, were by, came from people who never put a dime of their own money into Berkshire. And uh, so they, uh, and I don't think they've read our annual reports, and I don't think they've read the reports of Berkshire Hathaway Energy, and I don't think, I don't think they know you know, if I talk about what we're doing in high-voltage high transmission, we're doing more than any company in the country. Uh, uh, it, the president talked about what, what the government's going to do and how important it is. And, you know, it, we have a record in that's overall is incredibly good, but, but we have a group of organizations just generally, and, and, and they're nice people, but they, they want us to answer... A bunch of questionnaires their way, so they want us to go to Dairy Queen and Borsheim's and all those people have them fill out reports that show a bunch of figures when the reports that count are the reports that Greg gets on Berkshire Hathaway Energy and the railroad. And you talk about three of our companies and you've covered 95% of it. Uh, and it's asinine, frankly, in my view. Now, we do some other asinine things because we're required to do them, so we'll, we'll do whatever's required. But to have the people at, you know, Business Wire, you know, Dairy Queen, all these places, filling out reports to make it some common report that comes in, we don't do that stuff at Berkshire. We've got, during the, during the pandemic, we probably have about 12 people to come into headquarters, and we've got, you know, 360,000 people working in in a company that, that, that all kinds of diverse activities, and, and it's built, and I don't want to get into the whole thing, it's built on autonomy. And, and I am probably the only CEO of an S&P 500 company that does not get a consolidated income statement uh, every month. I mean, every other company, I'll bet in the S&P 500, prints out the earnings they had at the end, you know, from February and March, and the CEO gets and a whole bunch of other people get it. I don't get it. I don't need it, <laughs> you know. And, and I could put 60 or 70 companies in a whole lot of trouble and everything, and I, they'd hand me something, and I know the answer to it already, and it, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, they, they've got the money they need. So we don't do things uh, just because we've got a department of this or a department of that, and we don't want to set up a lot of departments like that. And And... What's important is what we're doing in the, well, primarily Berkshire Hathaway Energy and the railroad. I mean, that's, uh, and uh, I'll let Greg tell you about that in, uh, in just one second. But the, uh, uh, Warren, I don't, we, th I don't think we think we know the answer to the, all these questions about global warming and so forth. And the people who ask the questions think they know the answers. We're just more modest. Well, but even if we knew the answer, I mean, in terms of what we, the reports we would, yeah, yeah. we would not collect a whole lot of things that don't mean anything to us. And, and no. uh, to satisfy people who actually don't own any stock themselves, and, and in many cases, I can tell they haven't read our report even. The, uh, you know, we, 
as I pointed out in the annual report. And I never, nobody would have guessed this. People think we're a bunch of guys that own stocks and all that sort of thing. Berkshire Hathaway owns, by gap accounting, more property plant equipment, business infrastructure, which the president just got through talking about Wednesday night in infrastructure, the importance of it. We have, measured by gap accounting, more than any other company in the United States. We have more than any of those companies that are on the list of the largest companies in the country, but we've, and we've got it by a substantial margin. So we have an investment in what makes this country move and work. 15% uh, of the interstate goods move on, the, on our railroad. And we're building transmission. And we started in 2006 or seven uh, uh, planning how we would close coal plants. But you can't close coal plants until you get the electricity from where it's generated to the customer. And if you're going to generate it in Wyoming uh, and it's going to go to Las Vegas or someplace, and previously they had a coal plant near the place because that was the way it was done 50 years ago or 75 years ago. Uh, you better have the transmission. There's no sense having the wind blow in Wyoming and people turn, try and turn on the lights in Las Vegas. So we, we went at the transmission plan uh, question a lot earlier than people were talking about it. And we've done, we said 16 billion or whatever it was in the annual report that we underway and we just added two billion since the annual report came out and there's no there's no utility in the country that's coming anywhere close to that tell them a little bit about it sure Warren. thank you uh, and really as warren touched on bhe and bnsf have our or have the significant carbon footprints when you think of berkshire and warren you touched on the disclosure that we've provided in the past going all the way back to 2007 i did pull those uh, two investor presentations, one from 2007 and then our most recent one in 2021. So if we could pull up BHE1 on the, as a slide, I think it would just highlight going all the way back to 2007, we've been doing investor presentations for our, what we call our fixed income investors. And we've done that through every year through 2021. We've provided very similar disclosures to our board on an annual basis and had discussions around Berkshire Hathaway's energies plans to decarbonize. Now, it's interesting, if you go back to the 2007 fixed income conference, and, and we were having a conference at that point in time, we have third-party debt, capital debt that our utilities raise. It's a traditional capital structure used across our regulated entities to manage our, our total costs to the customers. So, we have investors. We present to them uh, as we're highlighting on, a, on an annual basis. And if you go back to that 2007 investor conference, it's interesting. In that presentation, we're highlighting climate change, that it's a fundamental risk. And we, and we discussed what good policy would be. We discussed innovation. We discussed market transformation and the importance of, se and the importance of setting targets at that point in time, and, and we had recommendations for our industry. And then since then, each year we've presented uh, really a, a plan and a strategy around how each of our businesses in BHE, but each of our regulated entities, how they're going to transform. And, and the whole transformation has been around decarbonization, managing that risk on behalf of our stakeholders in our many states, our customers that we serve, 
and ultimately managing that risk for Berkshire Hathaway's shareholders. Now, as you go through those presentations, there's a common theme, and, and Warren touched on it already. You have to build the foundation first, and that foundation is around building the high voltage, the transmission system. Warren touched on it in his annual report this year and letter he highlighted that at Berkshire Hathaway Energy we'll be spending just in the West $18 billion on transmission. <clears throat> Five billion of that's already been spent as we sit here today and that 13 billion will be spent over the, the next 10 years. That, that's the foundation that then allows us to build incremental renewable resources and move it to our many states that we, stir, that we serve at Berkshire Hathaway Energy and, and well beyond that. I would highlight while we've been building the, the transmission infrastructure in place, we have been building renewables. If you look at our investment through the uh, end, of, end of 2020, we've invested $30 billion or in excess of $30 billion into renewables and have really completely changed the way our businesses do business, i.e. our utility businesses. They've been decarbonizing and delivering a valued product to our, to our stakeholders, to our, to our, to our customers. And I think the, and I think the results are, are really amazing when you look at them and I'll, I'll give you a couple of reference points. If you go back to 2015, when the U.S. was discussing, excuse me, joining the, uh, the Paris Agreement, uh, very specific targets were set. Prior to those targets being set, Berkshire Hathaway Energy and 12 other companies, including the Apples of the world, Google, Walmart, committed to Paris and that targets needed to be set. Berkshire Hathaway Energy was one of those uh, companies in 2015. Yeah, how many other utilities were there? Right, Warren, there were no other energy companies that, that made any type of commitment at that point in time. I'm happy to report we made a variety of pledges. Uh, well, one of them was at that point we'd invested $15 billion in renewables and that we would commit $30 billion in total. Well, we far, far exceeded that total now. So there's been a clear commitment to reduce decarbonizing our businesses. We have focused on very identifiable, quantifiable outcomes, and I think that's very important. If you look at the standards that sit, were set with the, or the original U.S. government's commitments associated with the Paris Agreement, the target was 26 to 28 percent reductions in carbon footprints going back to 2005, so that's the reduction period, through 2025, and they wanted uh, the 26 to 28 percent reduction level. We committed to that at BHE. And I'm happy to report, Warren, into we've briefed our board. We achieved that in 2020. So we met our pledge and we met the, the commitment under the Paris Agreement. And then if you fast forward to the discussions that are occurring right now or have occurred around rejoining the Paris Agreement, <clears throat> uh, the current administration has proposed that, again, using 2005 as a starting point, that the emission goals or reduction should be 50 to 52 percent by 2030. Again, I'm happy to brief to our shareholders and, and, and briefings we've pro provided to our board. 
but Berkshire Hathaway Energy will achieve that by 2030. Our reductions will hit the Paris Agreement target. Again, the reason we can do it is we've built the foundation through transmission, the substantial investment that Warren's highlighted, and then followed that up with very specific investments on the, on the renewable side. I have one incremental slide that I hope sort of pulls it all together, and that's BHE2. Because as people discuss carbon, they often go to coal units, how many you own, how many of you close. And there's no important that, there's no question that can be an important metric, but it is a transition. And we have very much focused across the three utilities we own and the ones we've highlighted on the slide is to transition from our existing fleet to renewables using transmission. We have not become overly dependent on transitioning to gas. That's been a clear strategy. So over a period of time, our coal units will retire. I'm happy to report or pleased to report to our shareholders that through 2020, We've closed 16 units to date. If you look at from 2021 through 2030, there'll be an incremental 16 units closed. And then if you go through to the end of 2049, our remaining 14 units will be closed. And at that point in time, all our coal units are, are closed. That slide is just an aggregation of all the activities each of our business units have been taking to help facilitate that transition and really transitioning to a, a decarbonizing those units and I said decarbonizing our businesses on behalf of first and foremost our our customers the 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 many stakeholders they represent in their in the various states and then equally important decarbonizing those businesses on behalf of of our Berkshire Hathaway shareholders the only th other thing I would add, because it is the entity that has the second largest carbon footprint in, in Berkshire, and when you combine BNSF and BHE, you're talking the, the, the material set of, of emissions within Berkshire. BNSF has also been very active in managing their uh, carbon profile. They've committed to have science-based targets established for 2030. So again, those targets will again be consistent with the Paris Agreement. We've seen what the other uh, participants or some of them in the class uh, in, our, in, in the industry that have committed to. And our commitment will be very similar. It'll be consistent with the, with the Paris Agreement, but it'll be a 30% reduction in BNSF's footprint by 2030. So again, if you look at our, and, and that's been publicly disclosed, that's on the uh, BNSF website. Everything I've discussed regarding BHE is on their website, filed in 8Ks, completely accessible by our many shareholders. So when I look at it on from the perspective of our, our Berkshire shareholders, I really believe this risk is being well managed and, and we're positioning ourselves for the, for the long term. Thanks, Warren. Yeah, incidentally, I mean, the president the other night talked about $100 billion for infrastructure. We'd love to spend $100 billion. I mean, it, it, but uh, uh, he was talking about, you know, transmission is 
is really the problem. I mean, a, a big problem because you got to get <laughs> you got to get from where the sun is shining and where the where the wind is blowing, uh, essentially to to concentrations of population. And and uh, uh, it'll be whether the you know you cross state lines and you and you go through people's backyards. <laughs> it, it's whether the federal government has a better luck in just saying this is the way it's going to be done and ramming it down the throats of uh, where they go and getting it done. I mean, they, they may have that power and they'll, they'll be able to do it faster than we are. Uh, on the other hand, we'd love to do it. We'd, we'll spend the $100 billion, but the speed at which we can do it is uh, we bought Pacific Corp in 2006 and we had a bunch of customers out in the far west and and they had coal plants serving them. And to change that, you've got to be able to go to where wind blows and, 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 and deliver it. So it's, it's uh, but it, 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 it is interesting that we have published this information. We've spent more, far more than any utility than, than in terms of renewables and transmission in the United States. And we started with a nothing, you know, <laughs> little operation. But uh, our, our, the people who bought the stock with their own money, the individuals, they, they seem to understand it and they read the reports and, uh, uh, we get calls and they say, well, we, we want to come out and talk to you about it. Well, we're not talking to them and ignoring the million people <laughs> that have been with us over time and bought it with their own money. They, uh, we, we will not give special treatment to uh, uh, either to analysts or to, the, to, to, the, uh, to institutions over the individuals that basically trust us with their savings for their lifetime. Uh, this question is for Warren and Ajit. It comes from Fernando Lewis, a longtime Berkshire shareholder from Panama, who says, as a shareholder that intends to remain so for many decades, my biggest concern is around possible losses arising from higher than expected insurance losses. We've seen this in other great companies where underwriting mistakes end up crippling businesses previously considered exemplar. While I understand that Berkshire's culture is unique and the insurance division is full of talented individuals, this is a risk that concerns me. Many of us shareholders feel comfortable now, given the privilege of having Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, and Mr. Jane looking at these deals. However, there will be a day when this is no longer the case. Is it reasonable to think that over the long term, Berkshire should focus on plain vanilla short-tail insurance businesses like Geico and reduce, reduce the size of some long-tail risk? I want to clarify that I have the most respect and gratitude for all of Berkshire employees that have built the best insurance group in the world. I'm confident we have this talent to remain leaders in this field for decades to come. This is focused on the inherent opaqueness and risk of some insurance lines. Ajit, do you want to lead off? Or... I mean, clearly contract certainty is an issue for us in the insurance industry. It is an issue that cuts across not only the long-tail lines that you mentioned, but even short-tail property-focused lines. The most recent example is business interruption, which is an integral part of any property insurance policy that is bought and sold by corporations. Uh, it, is, it is a risk every time we issue a contract that either because of sloppiness in terms of how that contract is written or because of the regulatory environment we all have to live in, that uh, the words in the contract may be tortured. To, and normally when they are tortured, they end up going against the insurance industry, not in their favor. Uh, so, it is a risk. It's an unknown risk in terms of how bad it can be. 
I hope we price for it when we price for the product, we throw in something for the unknown unknowns, if you will. And we try and aggregate our exposures by major risk categories. Hopefully that will give us some comfort in terms of having some boundaries on what the exposure really can be. But uh, there's no question the regulators play a very important role in terms of the economics of the business, especially in the U.S. where there are 50 state regulators who we have to deal with in terms of pricing, in terms of contracts, in terms of... Uh, Most of the surprises in insurance, practically all of them are unpleasant. I mean, <laughs> you get the premium on, up front, that's pleasant. And then right. from there on, uh, you get some very imaginative... Uh, uh, losses that come through, and you get something you've taken on. We are willing to lose uh, in terms of sort of the outside limit. We think well, we're, we're willing to lose $10 billion in a single event, and uh, we want to get paid very appropriately for that. But uh, we've got the resources to do it, and if, uh, uh, but we we don't want to we don't want to lose $10 billion in something where we only thought we could. Lose fifty million or something like that, and you know the the current situation, for example, with the Boy Scouts of America. You know, they uh, the I think there were eleven hundred claims or something like that that have been Less filed, and now there's seventeen thousand just in. No, no, they're close to hundred thousand now. Oh, yeah, and up by fifty times. And and these go back to nineteen fifty or nineteen sixty, and you've got people advertising for claims, and so all of a sudden. You get a lot of claims. I'm sure a lot of the claims are valid. I'm sure a lot of them are invalid. And, well, and how in the world do you pick out the difference? <laughs> yeah, and it goes back to the issue that you just raised. The, the, the reason why this number of claims have skyrocketed from less than 2,000 to close to 100,000 is because the statute of limitations had expired. But in several states, if not in most states, they have unilaterally extended the deadline by, which, by when you can make claims and ex expanded it by a few years as a result of which a lot of more claims have appeared uh, funded by plaintiff lawyers who are now very well funded and that results in claims just skyrocketing. Yeah, it, we get a lot of unpleasant surprises in, in, in insurance, but we, we've got a very... Um, I'm very biased on this, but I, I, I wouldn't. I think we've got the best insurance operation in the world, and, and Ajita is the guy that created it. And, and, and the people at Geico, did, we bought that and did wonderful things over time to contribute their part of it too, and other people have. But, but Ajita is a symphony conductor on that. Um, this question comes from Henry Zhu, and he says. It looks like Charlie and Warren have some different opinions recently, like Costco and Wells Fargo. Where's that taking Berkshire? Charlie? <laughs> well, we're not all that different. And Costco is a company I, I very much admire, and I've enjoyed my long association with that, that company. And... But I love Berkshire, too. So, and luckily there's no conflict. And Warren and I don't have to agree on every damn little thing we do. We've gotten along pretty well. We have better than pretty We have never had an argument. We, yeah. In 62 years, and it's not that we agree on everything, but we've, we've, we've literally, in 62 years, 
I, we've never gotten, we've never gotten mad at each other. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it just no. doesn't happen. <laughs> this question is from Jason Plonner, and um, he says, "Mr. Jane and Mr. Abel, this question's for you." One of the successful features of Berkshire is the strong bond between Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, who managed the company better because they had each other. As you two are clear leaders of the next generation at Berkshire Hathaway, can you please tell us about how you interact with each other or some of the inc other incredibly competent Berkshire ma managers you seek for advice? Who's that directed at? Uh, uh, at at Reagan and G. Okay. okay. Well, there's no question that the relationship Warren has with Charlie is unique, and it's not going to be duplicated, certainly not by me and Greg. No, I can't think of very many other pairs that can duplicate it. Nevertheless, uh, both Greg and I, at least certainly from my perspective, and I'm sure Greg will speak for himself, uh, we've known each other for a very long time. Uh, I certainly have a lot of respect, both at a professional level and a personal level, in terms of what Greg's abilities are. We do not interact with each other as often as Warren and Charlie do, but every quarter we will talk to each other about our respective businesses and update each other on our respective businesses. And then during the course of the quarter, while we may not have any formal sort of meetings, if you will, but every time a question comes up which is related to insurance, Greg will pick up the phone and call me. By the same token, if there's any question that comes up relating to any of the non-insurance operations that Greg is in charge of, like we had recently where a client of mine was looking for trying to find a buyer, and I picked up the phone and talked talk to Greg, and we talked about you know, how best to proceed. So there's that that happens during the course of the quarter. Every quarter we exchange notes, and we have a perfectly well-functioning relationship between the two of us, and I hope it remains that way. Greg? Yes. <clears throat> well, as you well said, and, and as he touched on, Warren and Charlie have a, an exceptional relationship, but I'm very proud of the relationship Ajit and I have had. And it, as Ajit touched on, it's developed over many years. We've had the opportunity, or I've seen the, had the opportunity to see how Ajit's run the insurance business. And as Warren highlight and Charlie highlights, there's no one better at it. So I've had the opportunity to observe that. And then equally over the years, uh, that relationship has just built and become greater and greater. And as Ajit touched on, couldn't have more personal respect for Ajit, both personally and, and professionally. And even though the interaction may be different than, say, how uh, Warren and Charlie do it, as Ajit touched on, there is a regular dialogue, uh, both around opportunities within our two businesses and, and units, both if we see something unusual that the other other individuals should hear. We make sure we're always uh, following up with each other. But it goes beyond that. Uh, Ajit has a great understanding of the of the Berkshire culture. I, I strongly believe I do too. And anytime we see anything unusual in one of our businesses, it's Ajit who I'm going to call and say, are you comfortable that we're taking this approach? Is it going to be consistent with how you think about it, how you think about it in insurance? So it goes it goes beyond just discussing the businesses, but that maintaining the exceptional culture we have at Berkshire and building upon that. So very fortunate to have uh, Ajit as a colleague and, 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 and immensely enjoy working with him every day. Thank you. Um, this question comes from Glenn Greenberg. He says... It's on the profitability of Geico and BNSF. He said, why do these companies operate at meaningfully lower profit margins than their main competitors, Progressive and Union Pacific? 
Can we expect current managements to at least achieve parity? Was it Geico and? Uh, BNSF. Oh, uh, actually, uh, when you, if you look at the first quarter figures, you'll, you'll see that uh, uh, the, the Berkshire Hathaway Union Pacific comparison has gotten quite better. Katie Farmer's doing an incredible job at, at, at uh, BNSF. And it and, uh, uh, been an interesting question whether five years from now or ten years from now BNSF or Union Pacific has the higher earnings. We've had higher earnings in the past, Union Pacific past. Uh, the first quarter uh, you can look at and, uh, and uh, you know, they think they've got a slightly better franchise we think we've got a slightly better franchise. We know we're larger than the Pacific. I mean, we will do more business than they do, and we should we should make a little more money than they do. But we we haven't in the last few years. Uh, uh, but it's it's quite a railroad. I I feel very good about that. I, I should I should go back to the previous question. You know, people talk about the aging management at Berkshire, and I always assume they're talking about Charlie <laughs> when they say that. But but I I would like to point out that. In three more years, Charlie will be aging at one percent a year, <laughs> and he is the, no one is aging <laughs> less than Charlie. If you could take some of these new companies with twenty-five year olds, they're aging at four percent a year. So, so we will have the slowest aging managed percentage-wise by far that any uh, corporate, uh, <laughs> any American company has. Uh, um, did you want to talk about Geico versus Progressive too? Because I got a lot of questions well, on that. Progressive, progressive in recent Progressive has had the best operation in, in the last in recent years in terms of matching rate to risk, and I mean that's what insurance is all about, among other things. But I mean you have to have the right rate. If you think that 90-year-olds and 20-year-olds have an have an equal chance of dying, I mean you're you're going to be out of business very quickly in the life insurance business, and you will get all the 90-year-old risks, and the other guy will get the 20-year-old risks, and the same thing applies in auto insurance. I mean, there is a huge difference between 16-year-old males and how they drive, and 40-year-old married, you know, employed people. Uh, uh, it uh, uh, so the companies that do the best job of actually having the appropriate rate for every one of their policyholders is going to do very well. And Progressive has done a very good job on that. And we're, uh, we're doing a much better uh, job on that already. But uh, Todd Combs has gone there. And, and uh, it's a very interesting business. Both Progressive and Geico were started in the 30s. Uh, I believe I'm right about Progressive on that. And we were started in 36. You know, we have had the better product for a long, long time, I mean, in terms of cost. And here we are, uh, 80, 85 years later in our case, and we have about 13% or so of the market, whatever it may be, and Progressive has just a slight bit less. So the two of us have 25% of the market, roughly. And this huge market, after 80-some years of having a better product, so it's a very slow-changing competitive situation, but Progressive has done a very, very good job recently. We've done a very, very good job over the years, and we're doing a good job now, but we we have made some very significant improvements, and if you looked at the, don't want to look at the quarters too much, but but uh, uh, our profitability in the 
first quarter was good, but but we gave back more money under our give back arrangement when the when the uh, virus broke out. We gave two two point eight billion on our give back program that was larger than any company as well. That was the largest I think in the country, uh, and. Geico and Progressive are both going to do very well in the future, and uh, and actually the Union Pacific and BNSF are going to do well in the future. It's just in both cases we want to do a little bit better than the other guy. Can I can I just yeah. add a little bit? Yeah, there's no question. Progressive is a machine. They're very good at what they do, whether it's underwriting, which Warren talked about in terms of matching rate to risk, whether it's handling claims. Uh, having said that, I think Geico is catching up with Progressive. Uh, more than a year ago, about a year ago, Progressive had margins that were almost twice as much as Geico's and growth rates that were almost twice as much, much as Geico's. If you look at the results as of now, uh, Progressive is still crushing it in terms of growth relative to Geico. But Geico has certainly caught up with Progressive in terms of margins, and hopefully that gap will be non-existent in the future. The second point I want to make uh, on the issue of matching rate to risk, Geico had clearly missed the bus and were late in terms of appreciating the value of telematics. Uh, they have woken up to the fact that telematics plays a big role in matching rate to risk. They have a number of initiatives, and hopefully they will see the light of day before not too long, and that will allow them to catch up with their competitors in terms of the issue of matching rate to risk. I will predict that five years from now, State Farm is still the largest auto insurer, but I, I will predict that five years from now, it's very likely that the, the top two will be Geico and Progressive, and in which order we'll see. But but both companies are going to do very well, in my opinion. Well, they and they Geico's done well, extremely well, but uh, Progressive was better at the uh, setting the right rate and and. We're catching up, I think, fairly fast. Yeah, excuse me. Progressive has certainly done better, but when it comes to branding, Geico is, I think, miles, <coughs> excuse me, miles ahead of Progressive. And in terms of managing expenses as well, I think Geico does a much better job than anyone else in the industry. Um, this question comes from Vittorio Aguici from Switzerland. Who writes in, why in the recent past did Berkshire sell some of the common stocks owned on Apple? If the company is considered Berkshire's fourth jewel, why didn't Berkshire buy more of Apple stocks in 2020? This seems to be counterintuitive. Well, we have 5.3% or something like that now. It's gone up in the first quarter because we bought in our shares, which helps our own shareholders expand their interest in Apple indirectly without laying out a penny, and then Apple's repurchased its shares and just announced another repurchase program. So uh, let's say uh, we, we look at Apple as a business that we own 5.3%. Now, we've got it's, it's a marketable security, so it shows up as uh, way greater than any other marketable security we have. But, of course, if you look at our railroad, as we mentioned uh, well, Union Pacific is selling for about $150 billion in the market, and we own one that's a little larger than the Union Pacific and making a little less money, but not not much less. So it, it it's uh, it's a it's an extraordinarily Apple. It's got 
got a fantastic manager. Tim Cook was underappreciated for a while. He's, he's one of the best managers in the, in the world. And I've seen a lot of managers. And he's got a product that people absolutely love. And, and uh, uh, there's an installed base of people, and they get satisfaction rates of 99%. And I get the figures from the furniture mart as to what's being sold. And if people come in and they want an Android phone, they want an Android phone. If they, if they want Apple, they want an Apple phone. You can't sell them the other one. I mean, it, it, the, the brand <coughs> and the product is, is it's an incredible product. It's a huge, huge bargain uh, to people. I mean, the, the part it plays in their lives is huge. I use it as a phone, but I'm probably the only guy in the country. You know, maybe some descendant of Alexander Graham Bell is doing the same thing. But uh, it is indispensable to people. And, you know, it costs, you know, car costs $35,000. And I'm, I'm sure with some people, if you asked them whether they wanted to give up, had to give up their, their uh, Apple or give up, the, give up their car, you know, and really make the choice for the next five years, you know, who knows what they do. But it, it is, it's, and we, we, you know, we got a chance to buy it. And I, uh, I sold some stock last year, although our shareholders still had their percentage interest go up because we repurchased shares. But that was that was probably a mistake. In fact, I, I had Charlie, in, in his usual low-key way, uh, let me know that, that you thought it was a mistake too, didn't Charlie? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it, I could only do so many things that I could get away with with Charlie, and I kind of used them up between Costco and Apple. <laughs> So, uh, uh, and uh, incidentally, he probably, uh, um, he very likely was right in both circumstances. It's, it's an extraordinary business. But I do want to emphasize that uh, in his own way, it's a different way, but T Tim Cook is... We, we see a lot of managers of a lot of businesses, and you're looking at two great ones on the, both ends here. Uh, he's handled that business so well. He couldn't do what Steve Jobs obviously could do in terms of, of creation. Uh, but I don't, uh, but Steve Jobs couldn't really, I don't think, do what Tim Cook has done in, in many respects. Well, I also think it's clear that. That list you showed of the leading American companies, it's been a very important for America that we've done so well in this new tech field. And I personally would not like to see our present giants brought down to some low level by some anti-competitive reasonings. I don't think they're doing a lot of harm anti-competitively. I think they're a credit to the Americans. Credit to our civilization, yeah, and they're and they're huge, and they're huge, and that's good for us. Well, let me ask a follow-up question on that. Then this comes from Jack Sang, who says, "What's your mindset when you see so many of these high flyers? Not the GME or meme stocks, but more like the big tech growth stocks, gaining fifty percent, a hundred percent, two hundred percent, etc., in a matter of a year or less." I know you eventually bought Apple in 2016 because of the quality of their businesses and their management. 
How do you assess if these high flyers are worthy of your investment, given this crazy high valuations that muddy the waters? Well, we don't think they're crazy. <laughs> the, uh, but we don't... At least I, I, Charlie, I, I feel uh, that I understand Apple and its future with consumers around the world uh, better than I understand some of the others. But I don't regard uh, prices, and that gets back, uh, well, it gets, it, it, it gets back to something fundamental in investments. I mean, uh, interest rates, you know, basically are to, uh, to uh, the value of assets what gravity is to matter, you know, essentially. And, and uh, on the way out here, uh, I tore out a little clipping from the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Probably the only one that read it. So small, I'm having trouble f finding it. But anyway, yes, on Thursday, the U.S. Treasury sold some eight-week, some four-week notes, uh, Treasury bills, uh, and the price was in. If you looked at your Wall Street Journal down a little corner, next to the last page in my paper. In the, in the very bottom corner, uh, the here it is. The results of the Treasury auction, a little tiny thing. Uh, they sold for. They had applications on the on the four week Treasury bill for a hundred and some billion. They accepted bids for forty forty three billion worth. And it says average. Average price, 100.000000, six zeros. And essentially, people were giving 40-some billion dollars to the Treasury, and they offered to give 130 billion or something, whatever the amount tendered. And the Treasury received the money at zero. Uh, and Janet Yellen has talked a couple of times about the reduced carrying cost of the debt. Uh, and the, I think in the last fiscal quarter, the U.S. Treasury, which the uh, U.S. government, which owes a few billion, a few trillion dollars, I should say, a few trillion dollars more than a year ago, their interest expense was down 8%. So you've had this incredible reduction in the so-called super risk-free uh, group, the short-term Treasury bill. And that is the yardstick against which other values are, are, are measured. I mean, if, if, if I could reduce gravity's pull by about 80%, I mean, I'd be in the Tokyo Olympics uh, jumping. <laughs> and essentially, if interest rates were 10%, valuations are much different. So you've had this incredible uh, change in the valuation of everything that produces money because the risk-free rate produces really short enough right now, nothing. It's very interesting. I, I brought this book along because uh, for 25 or more years, Paul Samuelson's book was the definitive book on economics. It was taught in every school. And, and Paul was, a, he was the first, he was the first Nobel uh, Prize winner uh, it's sort of a cousin to the Nobel Prize. They started giving it in economics uh, 
uh, I think in the late 60s. He was the first winner from the United States, Paul Samuelson. Uh, uh, amazingly enough, the second winner uh, was Ken Errol, and both of them are the uncles of Larry Summers. <laughs> Larry Summers had the first two winners as uncles. Uh, but Paul, he was a wonderful guy, he was a wonderful writer, the definitive writer. And uh, so I got out the 73 economics book. And bear in mind, probably economics kind of started in, as kind of an interesting science and respect. But with Adam Smith, we'll say, you know, he wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. He'd written some books earlier. But you sort of date it from kind of when our country started. And then you had all these famous economists subsequently. And Paul became the most famous of his time. So I looked up in the back under interest rates. I looked for negative interest rates. There's nothing there. So I finally found zero interest rates. And Paul Samuelson, brilliant man, after a couple hundred years we've had of kind of studying economics, basically, he said that, uh, uh, he said you can conceivably, technically, you can conceive perhaps of negative interest rates, but it can't ever really happen. And that was you know, in the 1970s. This wasn't back in the dark ages. And this was a, and no economist wrote up and said, this is a terrible line to have in a book or anything. You know, and here we are in this world where we had zero interest rates last year on a, I mean, last week on a, or this week on a, on a four, four week note. And Berkshire Hathaway, which had a, has more than this, but let's say we had $100 billion in, in treasury bills. We have more than that. Before the epidemic, uh, pandemic, we were getting about a billion and a half from that a year. At present rates, if it's two basis points, we'd get 20 million. Imagine your, your wages going from $15 an hour to 20 cents an hour or something. Uh, it, it's been a sea change. And it was designed to be that. I mean, it was, uh, that's why the Fed moved the way they did. They wanted to give a massive push, just like Mario Draghi did in Europe in whatever it was, 2012, when he says, whatever it takes. And they, they went to negative rates. And uh, the Fed has said it doesn't want to go to negative rates. And I think the Treasury actually has got some small bar. But, but if, you, if present rates were destined to be appropriate. If, if the 10 years should really be at the price it is, those companies that the film mentioned in this question, they're, they're, they're bargaining. I mean, they, they have the ability to deliver cash at a rate that's, if you discount it back uh, and you're discounting at present interest rates, stocks are very, very cheap. Now the question is what interest rates do over time. But there's a view of what interest rates will be based in the yield curve out to 30 years and you know so on. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating time. We've never really seen what shoveling money in on the basis that we're doing it on a, on a, uh, a fiscal basis while following a monetary policy of something close to zero interest rates. And it is enormously pleasant. But in economics, there's one thing always to remember. You can, you can never do one thing. You always have to say, and then what? And we're sending out huge sums. I mean, the president said it on Wednesday, 85% of the people 
we're going to get a $1,400 check, you know, we're going to, uh, 85%. And <coughs> a couple of years ago, we were saying 40% of the people couldn't, never could come up with $400 of cash. So we've got 85% of the people getting those sums. And so far, we've had no unpleasant consequences from it. I mean, people feel better. Uh, the people who get the money feel better. And, and people who are lending money don't feel very good. But it causes stocks to go up. It causes business to flourish. It causes an electorate to be happy. And uh, we'll see if it causes anything else. And if it doesn't cause anything else, you can count on it continuing in a very big way. But there, there are consequences to everything in economics. But that is, that is why the Googles and the Apples, when we don't own Google, we don't own Microsoft, we don't, but they are incredible companies in terms of what they re earn on capital. They don't require a lot of capital, and they gush out more money. And if you're trying to find bonds that gush out more, more money from the federal government, we got $100 billion that's gushing out, <laughs> like, you know, 30 or $40 million a year, or whatever it may be, depending on the short-term rates. It's... Uh, so that puts the pressure on, which is exactly, of course, what the monetary authorities want done. I mean, that's, they're, they're pushing the economy in a, and they're doing it in Europe, you know, even more extreme. And they're pushing and we're aiding it with fiscal policy and people feel good and, and people will become numb to numbers. You know, trillions don't mean anything to anybody. You know, but, uh, uh, and, uh, and $1,400 does mean something to them. So we'll see where it all leads. But it's Charlie and I consider it the most interesting movie by far we've ever seen in terms of economics, don't we? Yes, and the professional economists, of course, have been very surprised by what's happened. It reminds me of what Churchill said about Clement Attlee. He said he was a very modest man and had a great deal to be modest about. And that's exactly what's happened with the professional economists. You know, they were so confident about everything. And it turns out the world is more complicated than, the, than they thought. <coughs> As a follow-up to that, Pat King, <coughs> what's your opinion about the economic theory MMT, um, especially the United States, because it's the reserve currency for the world? Well, I think they're more... I think the modern monetary theorists are more confident than they ought to be, too. I don't think we, any of us know what's going to happen with this stuff. I do think there's a good chance that, that this extreme conduct is more feasible than everybody thought. But I do know if you keep just doing it without any limit, it will end in disaster. On a related question, L. Candle wrote in on this too and said, if you can borrow money at a guaranteed low or even zero interest rate, is it still worthy of borrowing money for not that guaranteed cost from the insurance operation? It reduces the value of float by a substantial amount. And <coughs> we have a flexibility with our float that virtually no one has. And I've written about this in the annual letter. Uh, uh, but the, uh, the value of float has gone down dramatically because uh, uh, everything is everything is off of interest rates, and when you get to negative interest rates, uh, if a country can borrow at negative interest rates, you get into something that's kind of akin to the St. Petersburg paradox. And those of you who want to go to search, you can find some interesting things on it. But it becomes infinite. Uh, uh, it, it's a it's a crazy uh, 
consequence of a bunch of abstract mathematics that where you get there. But but you you lose you lose gravity entirely. Uh, and you know if you tell me that that, that I'm going to have to lend money to the government at minus two percent a year, and I'm talking nominal figures, not. Uh, you know, you're just telling me how I'll go broke over time. <laughs> if I if I do that, so it pushes you to do other things. And of course, we've seen it. Well, we saw the rest of the world do it in even more extreme fashion. But nobody, Paul Samuelson, brilliant man. Nobody, nobody thought you could do this. And and we don't really know what the consequences are. But we know there are consequences, obviously. This question comes from Sam Butler, who says he's been a shareholder for many years, and asks, what impact does the rise of so many new SPACs have on Berkshire's ability to find and close new acquisitions? Well, it's, it's a killer. Uh, uh, the SPACs generally have to spend their money in two years, as I understand it. So they have to buy a business in two years. If you put a gun to my head and said, you've got to buy a big business in two years, you know, I'd buy one, but <laughs> it wouldn't be much of one. Uh, uh, it's, you know, we look and look, and, and, and now there are, I don't know how many, whether it's hundreds. And there's always been the pressure from private equity funds. I mean, if you're running money for somebody else and you're getting paid a fee and you get the upside and, and you don't have the downside, you're, you're going to buy something. And uh, 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 I, I could tell you, but I, I, I had a very famous... I had a call from a very famous figure many years ago that was involved in it and wanted to learn about reinsurance. And I said, well, I don't really think it's a very good business. And he said, yeah, but he says, if I don't spend this money in six months, I've got to give it back to the investors. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's a different equation that you have if you're working with other people's money where you get the upside and you have to give it back to them if you don't do something. <laughs> and frankly, we're not competitive with that. Yeah. And that won't go on forever. But... Uh, it's where the money is now, and Wall Street goes where the money is, and it 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 does anything you know basically that that works. And SPACs have been working for a while, and you stick your a famous name on it, and you can you can sell almost anything. And it, it's it's but it's it's uh, it's an exaggerated version of what we've seen in in kind of uh, uh, well gambling done type market. In fact, I, I did have a quote from Keynes that we might put up on the, let's see if I've got, uh, yeah, this is, this is probably the most famous, one of the most famous quotes in, in history because it really sums up the problem of the fact we've got the greatest markets the world could ever imagine. I mean, imagine being able to own parts of the the biggest businesses in the world and putting billions of dollars in them and take it out of, you know, two days later. I mean, compared to farms or apartment houses or office buildings where it takes months to close a deal, I mean, the markets offer a chance to participate and invest in earning assets on a basis that's very, very low cost and instantaneous, huge, all kinds of good things. But it makes its real money if they can get, get the gamblers to come in because they, get, they provide more action and they're willing to pay sillier fees and all kinds of things. So you have this incredible, uh, huge asset to you, humanity, but it's, it really makes us money when people are doing stu stupid things. I mean, that's where the money really is. And 
Keynes wrote this in 1930, in 1936, it says 1939 on the slide, but he wrote in 1936 in the general theory that you know, speculators may do no, no harm as bubbles on a steady stream of enterprise. But the position is serious when enterprise becomes the bubble on a whirlpool of speculation. When the capital development of a country becomes a byproduct of the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be ill done. Well, the stock market, we've had a lot of people under the casino in the last year. You have millions and billions of people who have set up accounts where they day trade, where, they, where they're selling puts and calls, where they... Uh, I would say that you had the greatest increase in the number of gamblers, essentially. That, and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with gambling. And they, so they got better odds than they've got if they play the state lottery. But they've, they've had cash in their pocket. They've had action. And they actually had, you know, have a lot of good results. And, and if they just bought stocks, they do fine and held them. But, but the, the gambling impulse is very strong in people worldwide. And occasionally it gets an enormous shove. Uh, and, uh, and conditions lead to this place where more people are entering the casino than are leaving every day, and it creates its own reality for a while, and nobody tells you when the clock's going to strike 12 and it all turns to pumpkins and mice, but uh, uh, the, the, when the competition is playing with other people's money, or we're, whether they're, and if they're playing foolishly with their own money, but they, the big stuff is done with other people's money, <laughs> uh, they're going to beat us. I mean, and, uh, 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 we're not, we're not, uh, that's a different game and they've got more, they've got a lot of money. So we're not going to have much luck on, on acquisitions, uh, uh, while this sort of a period continues, but it's happened before. This is about as extreme as we've seen it, isn't it, Charlie? Or? Yes, of course. I call it fee driven buying. In other words, not buying because it's a good investment. They're buying it because the advisor gets a fee. And, of course, the more of that you get, the, the sillier your civilization is getting. And, uh, to some extent, it's a moral failing, too. Because the easy money made by things like SPACs and total derivative, return derivatives and so on and so on, you push that to excess, it causes horrible problems for the civil, civilization. And it reflects no credit on the people who are doing it and no credit on the regulators and voters that allow it. So I... I think we have a lot to be ashamed of in current conditions. But it's where the money is. Yeah, but we still... <laughs> but it's shameful what's going on. Yeah. It's not just stupid, it's shameful. It's not... I don't regard it as shameful on a lot of the people that gamble. I mean, it, 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 uh, gambling is a very human instinct, and they've got money in their pocket. And they know somebody else that's made money who they don't think is any smarter than they are. And, no, no, I, I don't mind the poor fish that gamble. I don't like the professionals that take the suckers. All right, Moshe Levine writes in. Um, he's an American living in Israel. Uh, he says, if you deem stock prices to be overvalued or in a bubble, do you think it's best to keep your money in cash while waiting for prices to come down to a fair price? Or would it be a better idea to invest this money in some way while waiting until stock prices are fair again and then sell the investment to buy the stocks? Well, Charlie and I have had that discussion on a lot of things. Uh, 
we've, we bought some stocks we really don't know that much about, but I'm not really comfortable doing that. Uh, uh, You're we, used to shooting fish in a barrel, but that's gotten harder. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've got probably 10 to 15 percent uh, of our total assets in, in cash beyond what I would like to have just as, as a way of protecting our, the owners and the people that are our partners from ever having having us ever get in a pickle. You know, we, 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 we really run function to make sure that, that, that uh, we, we don't want to lose other people's money who will stick with us for years. We can't help what somebody does and buys it today and sells it tomorrow. But we, we've, got a, we've got a real gene that pushes us in that direction. But we've got more than we... We've got probably 70 or 80 billion, uh, something like that, maybe... We'd love to put to work, uh, but that's 10% of our assets, roughly, and and and, and uh, uh, we probably won't get well. We won't get a chance to do it uh, uh, under these conditions. But conditions change very, very, very rapidly sometimes in markets, and we do have people that would like to join us, uh, but the market option they have is just. Is too great for them. If they're publicly traded, I mean, they, they basically can't. They, they would have great difficulty, well, then making a deal with us because somebody else would come along with using other people's money. It's, you know, we're, we may be unhappy about the $70 billion, but we're very happy about the other $700 billion. <laughs> So it's, it's not, like, not, not like we should complain. Warren, when uh, we spoke before the annual meeting, you said that it was okay if I asked a follow-up or two, and I'd like to check sure. one of those right now. You said you bought some stocks that you don't know a lot about. What are they? Well, uh, I, I, I will not get into naming <laughs> what stocks. Uh, uh, and it may be, may be that there's some there that I think I know about that I don't know about. But we, we, we have bought stocks where uh, Charlie and I, I mean, we know the business generally, but we don't have any insights uh and they are as a group if i had to if, if told me i was going to be shot unless i got the best result I, I would rather own those stocks than the treasury bills we own but on the other hand we work with the quantities of money where uh if we put 50 billion into the things that i'm kind of so-so about but that are better than treasury bills uh, uh, it doesn't i'm i'm not wildly comfortable about that even though it can be undone it's selling fifty billion to when it's really attractive to buy something else. There's a lot of there's a lot of slippage that can happen in moving sums like that around. So that's something we talk about all the time. They're good companies. Uh, they're fine companies. But but do we know something about those companies or have a, a way of evaluating that gives us an edge? The answer, I, I think. What do you, what do you feel about it, Charlie? We've talked about it a lot. Well, of course, it's a lot harder. And and I think one consequence of this present situation is that Bernie Sanders has basically won. And that's because the with the everything boomed up so high and interest rates so low, what's gonna happen is the millennial generation is gonna have a hell of a time getting rich compared to our generation. And so the difference between the rich and the poor and the generation that's rising is going to be a lot less. So Bernie has won. 
He did it by accident, but he won. All right, this question comes from Denny Poland, a shareholder from Pittsburgh. A prominent senator recently categorized share buybacks as a form of market manipulation. You've often said that repurchasing shares at prices below intrinsic value benefits continuing shareholders. Could you and Charlie please elaborate on the higher order effect that these share repurchases have on society? Yeah, they're a way of, they're a way essentially of distributing cash to the people that want the cash when other co-owners mostly want uh, you to reinvest and it's a savings vehicle. If the four of us sitting at this table decided we'd buy a few Dairy Queen franchises, we form a little company and we all put in a million dollars or something like that and we buy the Dairy Queen franchises and they're doing well and three of the four of us want to keep buying more Dairy Queen franchises and we're not done building and saving for the future and uh, we're, we're in the wealth creation business and the fourth one says listen I'm already I've gotten rich enough I'd rather take some money out and uh, well there's only two ways to do it we can we can pay dividends all four of us three of us of whom don't want it and and, and we can uh, we can repurchase the shares at a fair price if it's just the four of us we pick out a fair price and the fourth one gets bought out of his interest uh, uh, it, it it I find it almost impossible to believe some of the arguments that are made that it's it's terrible to to, to repurchase uh, shares from a partner if they want to get out of some, something and, and you're, you're able to do it at a price that's advantageous to the people that are staying and it's it helps slightly the, the, the person that wants out and and a majority of the Berkshire shareholders, a great majority we had a vote on dividends one time. Uh, we've got savers. Now, that's partly because we've advertised ourselves as being that sort of a vehicle. We've created that something. We've stuck with it for 50-something years. And, and people look, individuals, huge number, look at Berkshire as something they're, they're going to own until they die. Now, they may, their circumstances may change. Their needs may change. But the savers generally keep saving. We just recently had uh, somebody that... Father came with us 60 years ago and billions of dollars and they just they didn't they weren't saving exactly for their old age just just was sort of built into them that they like to do it now philanthropies will get a lot of money and so on and uh, it's it's the most what could be more logical than if if a very small minority of your holders want to get out and most of them want to stay in and the person wants to get out wants the money you don't give the money to everybody you give it to the one who wants it and the and, and you do it at a price that is beneficial to most parties on a private deal you'd work out the fair value the market tells you the value in the case of a publicly traded company charlie got anything well i, I if you're repurchasing stock just a bullet higher, it's deeply immoral. But if you're repurchasing stock because it's a fair thing to do in the interest of your existing shareholders, it's a highly moral act. And the people who are criticizing it are bonkers. Okay, this comes from Gary Gambino. He wants to know if Berkshire would switch its capital return policy to dividends from buybacks, if the capital gains rate goes up to 43.4%, dividends would be far more tax advantaged for shareholders under that scenario. Yeah. 
we had we we literally did have a vote by our shareholders. Now we've got a different group of shareholders than a REIT would have, or a, a, you know, a, an MLP might have. I mean, there's different people select what they go into, and people that go into SPACs are hoping the stock goes up next week. You know, I mean, basically, and uh, we've got a bunch of people that were assembled over 55 years, but they they started with a base of people that uh, it was a lifetime investment, and and. If they wanted to cash out, they thought they'd get a fair price at that time, but they really didn't. They had bought it with no intentions like that. Uh, so we had a vote, and it was something like 97% or something of the shares said they don't want a dividend. And now that wouldn't be true at other companies, and it'd be crazy to be paying a regular dividend like Coca-Cola has done for many years, and then all of a sudden change the policy on millions of people who had bought it with one expectation in mind and try and change it into a different animal. But Coca-Cola isn't going to change the Berkshire and Berkshire isn't going to change the Coca-Cola. We've got a different group of owners and, uh, and it will keep self-selecting because people have a choice every day. Which do you want to, sort of thing do you want to be in? And, and Berkshire is a, a, is a certain kind of animal in that respect. So we will, we will not, if they jig around the tax laws, that's really got nothing to do with the decision. I mean, we've got a very substantial majority of people that, that want us to reinvest the money. And, and what they're more concerned about is whether we find something to do with the money, the $100 billion or something. And repurchasing shares is something that helps them. Uh, in their, they own a larger percentage of Berkshire as they go along. And they'd, they'd love to see us buy another business, but with the, they don't mind us intensifying their interest in the present business. You got a lot of questions that came in on taxes, so I'll run through a few of them. We'll see kind of how many of you answer them, how many you answer before we get to them. But this one came from Arthur Lewis in Denver. What are your thoughts on the new administration's capital gains, corporate tax, and stepped-up basis tax increases? Well, if, if, if Charlie wants to answer that, I'll, 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 I'll be glad to have him do it. I, I <laughs> long ago, many times, have said that... that uh, I don't put my my uh, political opinions or anything in a blind trust when I take this job, but I also don't speak for Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, we've got uh, people that have very different views on taxes, and 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 uh, uh, you know, I've expressed some things in the past. But I, I don't like to speak on behalf of when I'm sitting at a Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, presumably speaking for Berkshire. I I, I don't really like to get into political questions generally. And I, I, I don't really think I should. I, but I also think if somebody asked me who I vote for, for the last election as a personal way, I voted for Biden. I, but I don't, I've never asked a single employee of ours who they voted for, you know, anything of the sort, what religion, it, it just, it, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 and it, I am not authorized to go around signing my name as chairman of Berkshire Hathaway to, to uh, to proposals. I write, if I write op-ed pieces, I do it as an individual. I try to make it clear. So I don't think I'll, I don't want to use the meeting to give a lot of views on taxes. Charlie, you? No, but I think it's probably a mistake to be basically anti-capitalist. I think capitalism is what raises GDP for everybody, and so, and I have a, also a feeling that you know, 
Benjamin Franklin was right when he said that it's hard for an empty sack to stand upright. And to some extent, the prosperity of leading American institutions helps them behave better. Now, there are exceptions in promotional finance and so on. But by and large, Franklin was right. And so I, I, I'm a little wary of just constantly being mad at people because they have a little more money. Charlie, there was a question that came in specifically to you on the tax issue. Over the years, and with emphasis in 2020, we've heard people leaving California for various reasons, such as high cost of living, high taxes, et cetera. I understand that you believe it's dumb for states to have policies and laws that provoke rich residents leaving, but are your thoughts, what are your thoughts on those people leaving? What keeps you in California? Well, that's a very interesting question. I frequently said I wouldn't move across the street to save my children. 500 million in taxes. And so, <coughs> so I have, that's, that's my personal view on the subject. But I do think it is stupid for states to drive out their wealthiest citizens. The old people, they don't commit any crimes. They donate to the local charity. It, who in the hell in their right mind would drive out the rich people? I mean, Florida and places, Places like that are very shrewd, and places like California are being very stupid. <coughs> it's contrary to the interests of the state. One more question for you. Jack Robbins asks, how will a 25 to 28 percent corporate tax rate affect Berkshire's companies? Well, I don't think it would be the end of the world. We've adapted to the tax rate, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I would say that if they raise the tax rate, uh, they're, they're owning a, uh, the federal government's owning a larger percentage of business. I'm not, but, but I'm not, I'm not saying what the tax rate is. But, but we have a class A stock and a class B stock. The U.S. government owns what I call the class AA stock. And it's a very special stock. They get a percentage of the earnings, but they don't own the assets, and they don't vote on who gets to run the place or anything else. But if the government wants to take, when I was first starting, they used to take 52 percent. The federal government did of corporate profits and and they they've got what would you pay to own the government's class a double a stock if, if, if there was a public issue by the u.s treasury and they said this vehicle given a name like spac or something even sexier but but and all it will do is it owns the future tax payments of berkshire hathaway forever and how much is that stock now worth and it gets and it and it'll pay a big cash dividend and they'll go up as we retain earnings and build the company and everything else. Well, it's worth more if it's if the tax rate is twenty five percent or twenty eight percent or fifty two percent than a twenty one percent. They own a special stock and and when when people talk about how it all gets passed through the customer and everything in the utility business, it actually does. It, they're, they're, that's a, a special case. But it doesn't. It doesn't in most of our businesses. I mean, it's just it's a it's a corporate fiction when they put out statements about the fact that this will be terrible for all of you people. <laughs> we pay more taxes. Uh, it, it 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 hurts the Berkshire shareholders if rates are higher, and that may be quite appropriate. But but to say otherwise is just it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. I would love to see the government actually issue. Well, they could have. I mean, they they could, they could set up a company, just call it the the Berkshire Hathaway Tax Company, 
and it would take all the taxes we paid every year. How much would they be able to sell that asset for? They, they talk about unfunded obligations of the government. That's an, un, that's an unreported asset of the federal government. They own part of Berkshire, and they get to determine how much. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, one last tax question. This one um, comes from William Barnard, who says, in the owner's manual, a portion of your annual report, Warren, you state, on my death, none of my stock will have to be sold to take care of the cash bequests I've made or for taxes. Would the recent Biden proposal to treat unrealized gains as sold and taxable at death at a 43.4% rate change the amount of stock required to be sold for payment of taxes upon your death? Yeah, well, uh, the, the tax law can be changed tomorrow. And I don't, you know, it can be done a lot of different ways. And it's been done a lot of different ways in the past. I can tell you, I, I can actually make a promise to society that 99.7% of what I have when I die will either go to philanthropy or to the federal government. And the federal government can actually determine the rules on that. And, and you know, I would prefer that it would go to philanthropy. I think it actually will accomplish more utility if it goes to be used by some smart people in philanthropy than if it simply reduces the federal debt by $100 billion or something when I die. I don't think it makes a damn bit of difference. You know, whether the federal debt is $100 billion higher or lower, it won't change anything in the world. And at present days, it doesn't really save them anything because they can borrow $100 billion, it doesn't cost them anything anyway. But that, that condition won't prevail. But, but I don't, I would not regard it. I'm just talking personally. I'm not advocating this public policy, but it, I wouldn't if they took it. If they took it all, you know, it, it would not bother me. I mean, it, oh, I it, guarantee it won't bother you. Yeah, yeah Charlie <laughs> says you won't know. But the, the uh, it, you know, it, if you decide, if if the American democracy decides that it's better to to take it all, I, I, which I don't think they will, and I don't think they should. But nevertheless, it, you know. So what? You know, <laughs> and I I would like to see it used to accomplish the most for humanity. I mean, and and that means uh, having smart people, uh, properly motivated, and more importantly, not improperly motivated, uh, distribute it in a way. And and who knows what the hell it would be, ten, twenty, thirty, or forty years from now. I do know if it goes to the government, it basically re it reduces the national debt. By that amount, I don't think it changes whether they change minimum wage laws or does anything else. I just think a little figure changes. It'll be, you know, it'll show up in the budget one day. You know, received from Buffett, you know, X, and then, and then some huge figure appears down below. I don't think it really. So I, I would prefer it be used privately, but that's really up to the people of the United States to decide through their representatives. Uh, this next question is for Ajit. It comes from Professor Don Wunsch at the Missouri University of Science and Technology, who says, um, Mr. Jane, what has COVID-19 taught us about systemic and correlated risk? And there, is there anything that we will do differently from now on? Yeah, in the insurance business, we often think about pandemic risk as one of the risk factors that we need to cope with uh, in our business. Having said that, I think the big lesson for us, having gone through what we've gone through recently, is that while we were aware of the fact that pandemic risk is a risk factor, it was totally, totally underpriced by all of us in the industry. Uh, several of us thought it's an event that will happen at most once in 100 years. 
and even then, uh, those odds are pretty high. So I think the big lesson for us is to recalibrate and rethink about what the return time is for something like a pandemic risk. And separately, we haven't yet done a good enough job as an industry, I'm saying, in terms of correlating the risk and aggregating the risk and making sure we can deal with the aggregate numbers. For example, pandemic risk has obviously taken, a li uh, taken, taken people's lives, but then separately a bunch of us used to write something called event cancellation or contingency policies. And in terms of pricing for the contingency policies, like the Olympics being canceled, uh, NBC would buy insurance for their rights, which might suddenly be not worth much. And when pricing something like that, we would think in terms of earthquake and risk and more recently terrorism, uh, but we would never factor something like what portion of the price should come from the pandemic exposure. So I think the industry will become a lot more sophisticated in terms of thinking through what is the impact of pandemic risk across the entire portfolio, as opposed to it just being localized to one or two areas. And I'm sorry, Don asked if anyone else on the stage wanted to comment after G on that same topic. I missed that. Oh, he, he was just looking if anyone else on the stage wanted to comment on that. Well, as Ajit mentioned, uh, people were throwing in uh, well, an event cancellation. You know, I mean, lots of people buy insurance against the Olympics being canceled or the United States not participating. I mean, they, they try to think of all kinds of risks because they, ad, they have ad campaigns based upon all. all. So there's a, lot, there's a lot of event cancellation insurance. And it was probably... Uh, underpriced the implicit part of that premium that was attributable to a pandemic risk. I mean, it, you know, Bill Gates gave a terrific talk at TED five or six years ago, and people ignored it. And, and uh, it, it's very interesting because this isn't a worst case what we've what we've seen, and and yet it's it's staggering in terms of what has happened, and and. People that wrote insurance uh, that they 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 may have found out sometimes that they were covering things they didn't want to didn't even intend to cover, and maybe the insurance didn't didn't think they were buying, but nevertheless, after the event occurs, that they get very inventive in coming after them. There are certain risks too that are just too big. The nuclear risk, for example, I mean the the federal government is. Uh, very early on, they recognized that the private insurance industry, uh, they, they can't handle a, uh, the risk involved in, uh, the financial risk that would be involved in terms of a massive uh, nuclear strike or something like that. So it, it's, the pandemics, the wording will be much more careful <laughs> in, in, in future policies on on trying to define it very precisely. And incidentally, I mean, the, the, in the way the cases have come so far, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, I mean, there, uh, and I think there was one particular insurer, I mean, the, the cases are coming down much tougher on insurers. And in, in, in the United States, I mean, the, the, the policies were just written differently. You don't, you don't get insurance against something you don't buy against it for. And generally, the, the, the court decisions have, have uh, come down favorable to, to insurers. And, and, and and at Berkshire, it just so happens we are not a big, big player, but that's uh, in, in commercial multiple peril, which might be where uh, 
it, it is not a huge factor for Berkshire. <laughs> this follow-up question is from Martin Devine, and he asked both Ajit and Warren, what's your best estimate of Berkshire's insurance claim exposure from the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, in terms of reserves, starting from last year to the end of the first quarter this year, we have put up a billion six and change in terms of reserves. Now, what that doesn't take into account is some of the frequency benefit because of COVID-19 that results because of fewer accidents. And Geico has had a huge tailwind because of that. So, but in terms of what the insurance operations collectively are going to be writing checks for, that number, as of now, is about a billion six. And my guess is that will probably grow. Because if you look upon it, the industry as a whole has reserved, we've reserved 1.6, as I mentioned. The industry as a whole has reserved about 25 to $30 billion for COVID-19 as of now. If you believe the pundits in the industry, they will tell you that number is probably going to be closer to 100 billion. So there's another about $70, $75 billion of COVID-19 losses that need to flow through insurance industry's balance sheet and income statement. Our number, therefore, of 1.6 that we have as of now is going to be a lot, lot higher. But it's not something that we cannot manage completely. Yeah, we will not be in the top five right. payers of, my guess, of insurance claims, even though we're – it's uh, – and uh, we, we write a much smaller amount of both life insurance and annuities, actually, and – you know, in the end, we get we we had more life insurance claims, but but the, the annuities are not going to last. More people will have died that would have otherwise got payments under annuities. It it cuts a lot of ways. It's 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 a you know one of the great human catastrophes of all time, but it is not uh, it's not that big an insurance. And I would say this: if, if the insurance industry thinks they're going to lose a hundred billion dollars, the hundred billion ought to be up on their books now. I mean, uh, the idea of feeding in losses, uh, the, you've got a liability. And, and our goal is not, uh, our goal is to have put up the liability when it, when it, when we think it's happened. And then, and, uh, if we should not be at a billion six, I would say this, if we really, if we really think we're going to have some proportional share of a hundred billion, uh, but, uh, 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 well, that's an upset on that. <laughs> um, this next question is for Greg, but also for Warren and Charlie. It's from Blair Miller, who asks, what does the co combination of Kansas City Southern with either Canadian Pacific or Canadian National mean to BNSF in terms of competition? And do you think the synergies of the merger will justify the multiple paid? Sure. So it's obviously a uh, transaction uh, we followed very closely with both Canadian National and Canadian Pacific uh, bidding to purchase Kansas City Southern. Uh, either of those companies acquiring Kansas City Southern will have an impact on BNSF. Uh, we, what they're basically proposing is to create a north-south railway that goes from Canada into Mexico. Uh, we do have a strong presence in Mexico, not as strong as, as some of our competition, but we would feel competition there. So uh, we'll follow that transaction very closely. Uh, as it goes before the Surface Transportation Board, the, the standard that will be applied is that competition has to be protected or enhanced. 
So that's our opportunity to protect our, our franchise on behalf of our customers. So we, we move intermodal business both in and out of there on behalf of certain customers. We'll want to protect uh, the rights of our customers there. So we'll be active in, in the approval process, but there's no question in the end it impacts our franchise. Warren? Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's not huge, but uh, it affects both the Union Pacific and the NSF. To a small degree, relatively small degree, and but that's that's not really the worry of the Service Transportation Board. Their job is to do what's best uh, for for the the shippers, and and uh, uh, in terms of the price that's being paid, uh, you know, uh, like I say, when if you can borrow all the money for nothing, you know, it really doesn't make much difference to people, and and. This would not be being paid under a different interest rate environment. I mean, it's very simple. Uh, but uh, it, it, it would make uh, – there's no magic to the Kansas City Southern. It's got a – I think their deal with Mexico ends in 2047. And that, uh, I mean, it's, it's – uh, you know, it, it will uh, – it, it, the number of – Carloads carried and everything. It's not going to change that much. Uh, 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 but it, it is kind of interesting. There's only there's there's two major Canadian what they call Class One railroads, and there's there's five in the United States, and and uh, uh, this will result, you know, in essentially three of the units uh, being Canadian, four being U.S., which is not the way you normally think. <laughs> Of the way the development of the railroad system would, would work in the United States, but it's, you know, we've talked about it plenty, and and uh, uh, CP or either Canadian Pacific or Canadian National is very likely to get. I think the Surface Transportation Board vote, voted for it one, didn't they? The other day, didn't get. Right. Am I correct they voted, on? They voted on an initial trust structure that they had to approve for. Uh, Canadian Pacific, and that was a four-to-one vote, as you noted, Warren. So yeah. they're, they're moving forward with the evaluation of it. Yeah, and normally railroad deals are very long, take a long time for them to evaluate. But in this case, I think they have two, two opposing trust proposals. And in effect, uh, by making a, if they make a quick decision on the which trust proposal that they allow, I don't, I don't say you allow two proposals exactly. So. It may be a very accelerated decision. I, I don't know, but uh, it's up to the Surface Transportation Board to do what's what's best for what their obligation is to the country to do. Um, there was a follow-up question on that. Do you sure. think the valuation that they're paying is worth it? Well, I, we, in a very very mild way. I mean, everybody's contemplated making deals with different railroads. You know, ever since I've been in the railroad business, <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, we, we've talked about it. We when CP, when 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 uh, uh, was Hunter Harrison, or uh, you know, came after was it Hunter that did on CP that kind of led the way, and uh, uh, you know, we looked at buying CP. I mean, they're, 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 everybody looks at everything, and. Uh, uh, we would not pay this price, and it implies a price for 
BNSF that's even higher than what the UP is selling for. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of play money to some degree. I mean, when, when interest rates are this low, and, and I'm sure from the standpoint of both CP and CN, there's, there's only one KC Southern. And they're not going to get a chance to expand it. They're not going to buy us. They're not going to buy the UP. And, and uh, the juices flow and, and uh, the prices go up. And, and they're and, buying uh, somebody else's money. Yeah, it's somebody else's money, and you're going to retire yeah. in five or ten years, and people are not going to remember what you pay, but they're going to remember whether you built a larger system. And, and the investment bankers are cheering you on at every move. You know, they, they're, they're saying you could pay more, and this is the, you know, they're moving the figures around, the spreadsheets are out, and the fees are flowing. <laughs> um, this question comes from Asher Haft in Brooklyn, who says, um, Asher's been a, a shareholder since 2006 says that um, he appreciates your honesty and candidness when it comes to explaining costly errors you made and this year's chairman letter you discussed that you made a mistake in 2016 when calculating precision cast parts average amount of future earnings which resulted in Berkshire overpaying to acquire it it appears that precision's earnings declined substantially in 2020 because of the pandemic and the effect of airline and travel industry um, what calculations could you have made in 2016 that might have altered your decision to acquire it? And secondly, are the problems Precision is currently facing larger than the pandemic? Well, Berkshire didn't make the mistake. I made the mistake, incidentally. Uh, the, uh, uh, no, I, when, anytime we look at buying a business, we're evaluating the competitive strengths of the business, the price we have to pay, the management we, we get and everything. And, 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 we didn't make a mistake on the management, but in terms of the earning power on average, and you know, when when Boeing has troubles with the Max, well, that's that's a probability. I mean, anytime any any customer is a big, I mean, all kinds of things can happen, and and uh, we have seen some of those things happen, and and therefore. I paid too much in relation to average earnings. It's a it's a terrific company, and 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 uh, you know it, it it's I'm happy happy with the management and everything, and but GE doesn't need as many engines as we thought we need, and they and they get, they get into the power business and a variety of things, and we knew those they're in the businesses, but we did not think those businesses would necessarily be in a something close to a depression. When other businesses are that we bought end up doing sometimes doing better than we think, uh, but we w we'll we'll continue making mistakes. I mean, uh, and, and I shouldn't say we will. I will. Uh, but even these other the guys rest of us will help. <laughs> and and, uh, and well, uh, you know, we've we've got some wonderful deals and some terrible deals. And, and uh, the nice thing about it is, as I pointed out, it, this doesn't really precise. Apply in the case of precision precisely, but when we're disappointed in a business, it usually becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of our business just by the nature of things because it isn't going anyplace. And when we get a successful business like a Geico or something of the sort, Geico's doing they're, they're doing 15 times as much business as when we bought Control in 1990. They, they become a proportionally much more important part of our mix. So you really get through just natural forces, you get more of your money in the things that have developed more favorably than you thought, you actually end up getting a 
of greater concentration uh, in the ones that work out. It's, it's not like, as Charlie would say, it's not like having children. I mean, uh, the, 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 the ones, that, the bad ones cause you more problems. But, but the, uh, but in this, in the, in the children of businesses, the small ones kind of, with the way we started with three businesses, Charlie and I, and and, uh, uh, and Berkshire was textiles, diversified retailing was a department store, and training stamps were blue chips business, and those were the three companies we put together, and all three of the original businesses failed, which sort of gets me in terms of the people that are worried about about don't we know that that coal is going to be phased out over time of course we know coal is going to be you know but that that, that doesn't mean we're going to be phased out over time i mean that that every business has, has has some things to think about about that way the biggest danger they have that section in the prospectus called what do they call that and uh about risk certain factors. risk factors but risk factors yeah, yeah. Risk factors. the number one risk factor you never see it the number one risk factor is that this business gets the wrong management and you get a guy or a woman in charge of it that are, they're personable, the directors like them, they don't know what they're doing, but they, 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 they know how to put on an appearance. That's the biggest single danger that a business fan, and, and, and if that person stays and runs it for 10 or 15 years and either stays in the textile business or the department store business and expands. And, and uh, you know, I've looked at a lot of businesses and, that's what's caused the number one problem, and it isn't the kind of thing where they list them all because the lawyers tell them to list them. Uh, this question comes from Raghu Bashwal, and it's for both Warren and Charlie. Now that the crypto market overall is valued at $2 trillion, do you still consider cryptos as worthless artificial gold? <laughs> well, I, I knew there'd be a question on Bitcoin or crypto. <laughs> And uh, I thought to myself, well, I've watched these politicians dodge questions all the time, you know, and, and, and uh, I always find it kind of disgusting when they do it. But the truth is, I'm going to dodge that question because the, we probably got hundreds of thousands of people watching this that own Bitcoin. And we probably got two people that are short. So we got a choice of making 400,000 people mad at us and unhappy and or making two people happy. And. That's just a dumb equation. So I, I thought about it. We had, we had a governor one time in, in uh, Nebraska and a uh, long time ago, but uh, he would get a tough question. You know, what do you think about property taxes or, you know, what should we do about schools? And, and he'd look right at the person. He'd say, I'm all right on that one. <laughs> and then he'd just walk off. Well, I'm all right on that one, and maybe we'll see how Charlie is. <laughs> Well, those who know me well are just waving the red flag of the bull. <laughs> uh, of course, I hate the Bitcoin success. And I don't welcome a currency that's so useful and to kidnappers and extortionists and so forth, nor do I like just shuffling out a few extra billions and billions and billions of dollars to somebody who just invented a new financial product out of thin air. So I think I should say modestly that I think the whole damn development is disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization. And I'll let, leave the criticism to others. <laughs> I'm all right on that one. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, the next question that comes in, or the next series of questions is from, are from James Hernandez. He has two questions, one for Ajit, one for Greg. They both concern Elon Musk. Um, for Greg, this question is um, for you. Elon Musk has stated that Berkshire Hathaway's energy proposal for Texas, spending more than $9 billion for new generating capacity, is wrong. Instead, Mr. Musk argues that load balancing using battery storage is the appropriate course of action. Can you explain why the BHE proposal is the better course of action for Governor Abbott in the state of Texas? Specifically, what amount of savings can the citizens of Texas expect above and beyond what Mr. Musk is proposing? Sure. So the uh, obviously there is a very unfortunate event in Texas in, in February, and it basically lasted four days. Many lives were lost. The economic damage was significant. Texas has highlighted that anywhere from 80 to, 80 to $130 billion in incurred losses over that period of time. And I I think when you look at the power sector, it fundamentally let the citizens down. It didn't perform as as they expected. And and then when it did perform, it was extremely expensive. Uh, they they incurred billions and billions of dollars of of energy costs versus uh, a multiple of 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 basically 10 times what they paid. They paid 10 times uh, in energy costs over those four days what they paid uh, uh, <coughs> in, the, in the past year. So a very substantial event for, for Texas. We've, we've gone to Texas with what we believe is a good solution. Uh, we spent a lot of time pulling it together, understanding the, the fundamental issues around it. And our proposal is really based upon the fact that the, the health and welfare of, of Texans were at risk, and and we needed to have effectively an insurance policy in place for them, that if they needed the power on very short notice, it would be able to be dispatched and it would be there for the the four days we're actually proposing it could be there for for seven days. And the, and the funda fundamental concept of our proposal has always been if there's a better proposal that's brought forward, we've accomplished our mission. We've just been really there to, uh, it's the it's the best proposal or option we could come up with. And, and obviously if Texas or or Elon or someone else comes up with a, a better proposition, we've always said, Texas, you should pursue it. Um, we strongly believe right now we have a, what remains is a very good good proposal for Texas and it'll continue to be discussed and, and evaluated. The big difference between a battery proposal and our proposal is that we will have power that can be generated continuously for um, seven consistent days, where if you went to a battery solution, you may release that power that's been stored for four hours, but we're talking four days of a, of a problem, not four hours. And, and it's just a completely different cost equation and, and solution. So very proud that our teams brought forward uh, uh, what I thought was a very unique solution. We've worked hard with uh, our, our suppliers and, and Peter Kew and Sons to put together what we believe is a, a firm cost that, uh, that can also be delivered by November of 23. So again, we put a firm date on. Uh, it won't be ready next winter, unfortunately. It won't be ready this summer but it's a, it's a valuable solution and one that uh, we hope at least leads to the right discussion and the right long-term solution for the state. Yeah, and we're, we're also willing to put up $4 billion 
that if we don't deliver when we say we're going to deliver, uh, we'll, we'll pay it as, as a penalty, basically. And, and uh, uh, But, you know, we went to Kiewit, we went to General Electric and said, you know, how long can we get turbines? And, uh, you know, for that, it, it, we, uh, you know, it, if you're going to be prepared for 2023, it, you have to start at a point fairly soon and you have inflation going on and and Kiwi's not going to change things on us in a month. We don't, we don't try to get the contracts all written out, but we they had 100 people working on it. Or yeah, they had hundreds working yeah. on it. And, 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 you know, and GE's cooperative and everything. But it doesn't mean we have the best solution. We just know what we can do. And and if anybody can do it faster, they can do it cheaper, you know, whatever. That's terrific. Uh, but they, they should have something to lose, though, if they don't do it. I mean, uh, uh, and, and we will back our promise up by $4 billion, which, uh, you know, and, and we won't have any rinky-dink clauses in there that, that if this happens or that happens, we don't pay. Well, so, but we won't be able to do that a year from now. I mean, we can do it a year from now with the cost then from what they are then, and then it'll be a year further out. But we, we want Texas. Texas is a terrific place to do business. We do a lot of business there, and where BNS had a... Headquarters. We, and it's it's a great place. And uh, and this was out of the blue, but one way or another, the the nature of of, of utility business is that you got to you have to be prepared for something that probably isn't going to happen. <laughs> and yep. you know you don't want to say it's a, well it's a one in thirty year event you know and and, and people die. I mean it's so uh, you want. You want a margin of safety in it, and and we've got one solution, and other people may have other solutions, and and we will we will cheer when a solution is re reached of any kind, and we will cheer a little louder if it's ours. <laughs> um, Ajit, your question from this gentleman: Suppose the hypothetical situation arises where Warren Buffett calls you on the phone to tell you that Elon Musk has contacted him about writing an insurance policy on his proposed mission to and subsequent colonization of Mars. Specifically, he wants insurance to insure SpaceX heavy rocket, capsule, payload, and human capital. Would you underwrite any portion of a venture like that? This is an easy one. No, thank you. I'll pass. <laughs> well, I would say it would depend on the premium. <laughs> and, and I would say that, that I would probably uh, have a s somewhat different rate if Elon was on board or not on board. I mean, you know... I, I, you know <laughs> No, it makes a difference. I mean, if if, somebody, if somebody's asking you to insure something, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, so I would. That's called getting skin in the game, and what a, you know. <laughs> but in general, I would be very concerned about writing an insurance policy where Elon Musk is on the other side. Okay. Um, Tell Elon to call me instead of the jeep. <laughs> <laughs> This question comes from Michael Liu uh, from California. This is for both Warren and Charlie. In your shareholder letter, you mentioned that the best investment results come from the companies that require minimum assets to conduct high-margin businesses. In today's world, many of these companies tend to be software-driven businesses. While Berkshire has avoided investing in high-growth technology companies in the past, this appears to be slowly changing with your investments in Apple and Snowflake. As shareholders, should we expect that high-margin businesses will begin to constitute a larger proportion of Berkshire's investment portfolio over time, particularly as Todd and Ted take on larger roles in the investment decision process? Well, 
we've always known that the dream business is the one that takes very little capital and grows a lot. And, and Apple and Google and Microsoft and Facebook are terrific examples of that. I mean, Apple has $37 billion in property, plant, and equipment. You know, Berkshire has 170 billion or something like that. And they're going to make a lot more money than we do. They're, they're in better business. It's a much better business than we have. And so in Microsoft's business is a way better business than we have. Google's business is a way better business. Uh, so it, we've always looked, we, we've known that a long time. We found that out with Seize Candy in 1972. I mean, Seize Candy just doesn't require that much capital. It, it, it doesn't have, it, you know, it has, it has obviously a couple of manufacturing plants, they call them kitchens, and, uh, but it, 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 it doesn't have a big doesn't have big inventories except seasonally, very for a short period. Doesn't have a lot of receivables, so they're in very, you know those are the kind of businesses. We, they're the best businesses, but they command the best prices too. And there aren't that many of them, and they don't always stay that way. So uh, we're looking for them all the time, and we've got a, we've got a few that are pretty darn good, but but uh, we don't have anything as big as the as the big guys. But that's what everybody's looking for. That, that's that's what capitalism. Is about people getting a return on capital, <laughs> and and the way you get it is having something that doesn't take too much capital. I mean, if you have to really put out tons and tons of capital, the utility business that way, it's not a it's not a super high return business. You just have to put out a lot of capital. You get a return on that capital, but but you don't get you don't get fabulous return. You don't get Google like returns, at, you know, or anything remotely close to it. Um, the, you know, we're proposing a re return in the and the uh, transaction with uh, the proposition with Texas, I think it's a 9.3%. Yeah, 9.3%. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that, but if you look at the return on most American businesses on net tangible assets, it's a lot higher than 9.3%. But, but they aren't utility businesses either. Charlie, did you want to add anything to that? No, thank you. This question is from Ryan Fasaro in New York City, who says, Todd and Ted have taken on increased responsibility at Berkshire over the years, managing larger pools of capital, including the company's sizable Apple Holdings, participating in M&A strategy, and even overseeing the company's now shuttered healthcare partnership with Amazon and J.P. Morgan. We are grateful for their efforts. But Todd and Ted are still not made available to shareholders at the annual meeting each year. Given their growing importance to the firm, can you discuss this policy and whether we can expect to hear from them more in the coming years? They're both absolutely terrific. And that's one reason I don't want people quizzing them on stocks. <laughs> they, they, they are assets of Berkshire. And just uh, there, there's no reason for them to be out educating other people on how to compete with us. Uh, and it wouldn't it, – it, it, it always seems so silly that, that – People expect they don't expect you to, they don't expect Merck or Pfizer or something to tell them exactly what their scientists are working on, you know, and where they stand and where the failures have been, so they can eliminate those. Yeah, they, and and you know the the the, the if you've got talent that knows how to evaluate businesses, and, and those two fellows have been they've gone far beyond that. Uh, they have terrific assets, and they they love they love Berkshire, and they work extraordinary hours, but but. We don't really want them going around with people asking them questions about why you like this industry better than that industry or anything of the sort. This question's for Charlie. 
It comes from Stephen Tedder in Atlanta. He's been a Berkshire shareholder for 10 years and says, you and your, your friend Li Lu have been very optimistic with respect to investing opportunities in China. BYD has performed spectacularly for Berkshire since its initial purchase in 2008 and is currently valued at $5.8 billion. The Daily Journal recently bought a large position in Alibaba after founder Jack Ma had been reprimanded by the Chinese Communist Party and Ma's other company, Ant, was not allowed to proceed with its IPO. What are your current thoughts on China and whether the communist leaders will allow businesses with strong leadership to flourish in decades to come? Well, I think that uh, that the Chinese government will allow businesses to flourish. It was one of the most remarkable things that ever happened in the history of the world when a bunch of committed communists just looked at the prosperity of places like Singapore and said, the hell with this, we're not going to stay here in poverty. We're going to copy what works. And they changed communism. They just accepted Adam Smith and added it to their communism. They said, now we have communism with Chinese characteristics, which is China with a free market with a bunch of billionaires and so forth. And they made that shift. They deserve a lot of credit. Warren and I are not quite as good at that as changing our minds in many cases. <laughs> and, and that was a remarkable change coming from such a place. And, of course, it's worked like gangbusters. It had this enormous growth in the average income of the average Chinese. They've lifted 800 million people out of poverty fast. And it, it, there was never anything like it in the history of the world. So my hat is off to the Chinese. And I think they will continue to allow people to make money. They've learned it works. The Chinese, I love what the guy said in the first place. I don't care whether the cat is black and white as long as it catches mice. That's my kind of talk. In that list of the 20 most valuable companies, three are Chinese. Now, if if you're looking out 30 years, you know, how many do you think will be Chinese? My guess is more, but uh, but I don't think that, I don't think it'll top the United States. Uh, uh, but who knows? It's it's amazing what what has been accomplished, and, and that, yeah, it, really amazing. And they found what works. I mean, there's nothing like finding something that works in order to sort of reinforce ideas over time, and we'll see what happens. But I'll, I would bet there will be more than three. But I will bet the United States has more than. This one comes from Tim Medley, sorry, Tim Medley in Jackson, Mississippi, who's been a Berkshire shareholder since 1987. He writes, on March 19th, respected economist Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard University and the former secretary of the Treasury under President Obama, was critical of President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion American rescue stimulus plan. In an interview with Bloomberg Television, he said, I am much more worried that we will have more inflation or that we will have a pretty dramatic fiscal monetary collision. This goes way beyond what is necessary. He said also, this is the least responsible macroeconomic policy we've had in the last 40 years. Your thoughts? You're asking me on that? <laughs> he didn't write to who, so I guess anybody on well, the stage. Well, I would, I would say that uh, Larry's been reading his uncle's book, <laughs> which was... Paul Samuelson, but no, Larry is a very, very, very smart uh, fellow, and he's laying out possibilities which uh, actually now have probably been voiced a little more even since that that March 19th uh, uh, 
uh, or whatever date it was that, that he made that. Uh, it, you can't just do one thing in economics. And, and, and uh, uh, if we really could shovel out more and more debt, and the carrying cost turned out to be something very good. People thought Japan couldn't do what they've done, but they, you know, they, that uh, it used to be called the Widowmaker and around Solomon, and, and, and people were, were shorting uh, Japanese bonds, but uh, it, the, the answer is we don't know, but Larry's view uh, is an important view, and it's just as good as, in my probably the view on the other side uh, might be. We we don't know what happens from from the present policies. We do know, as as Jay Powell said the other day, the idea that 100 percent of GDP was some terribly dangerous level for G, uh, uh, in terms of uh, debt, and, and it, that, that that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense now. And that used to be kind of kind of uh, accepted wisdom. Uh, we've learned that a lot of things we thought before weren't true, but what we, ha we haven't learned yet is whether what we're doing now is true. <laughs> and, and, we, and the best thing to do is recognize you don't know and, and proceed in a way where you get a decent result no matter what happens, and that's what we try and do at Berkshire Hathaway. We do not think we can make money by making macroeconomic predictions. We do think we can... We do think we can pretty darn be pretty darn sure we'll get a reasonable result uh, under policies that will not maximize result if we could do that sort of thing. It's not at all clear whether Larry is right or wrong. And He's a smart man, though. He is a smart man. Yeah. And, and it's courageous of him to raising it. To, he's practically the only one talking that way. Which I admire, by the way. Yeah, it guarantees he won't get a position in the administration. Yes, well, that's one of the reasons I admire him. Yeah, and it, it, not that there was anything wrong with having a position in the administration, but I think people who kind of tell the way they think it is, I, I like it. Um, this question comes it circles back to banking, which you touched on earlier. But Jerome Bernard from Switzerland writes. Could you please explain why you decided to exit most of your bank stocks in 2020, except for Bank of America? And what's your view on the future of the banking industry? I, I like banks generally. I just didn't like the proportion we had in it compared to the possible risk if we, if we got bad results that did not, so far we haven't gotten. So I, I, I just, uh, and I, we were over 10% of Bank of America. There's, it's a real pain in the neck to both of the bank and more of the banks than us if we go over 10%. There's just a whole lot of And uh, I like the Bank of America. I mean, I, and I like Brian Moynihan very much. And and I like the banking business fine. So we took that up, but we took the overall bank position down. We didn't want to go above 10 in any of the others. And we did want to increase the B of A position. But, but we overall didn't want as much... Uh, in banks as, as we have. We, we like, the banking business is way better than it was in the United States in 10 or 15 years ago. The banking business around the world uh, in various places would, might, might worry me, but uh, we, we, our banks are in far, far better shape than 10 or 15 years ago. But when things froze for a short period of time, the biggest thing the banks had 
going for them is that the Federal Reserve was behind them. And the Federal Reserve is not, they're not behind Berkshire. It's up to us to take care of ourselves. This question comes from Matt Y. in Los Angeles. You recently purchased a large stake in Verizon. For educational purposes, could you please explain your thinking behind this investment? In general, many people see telecoms as dumb pipes that have to spend heavily on CapEx building out the 5G infrastructure only for the other tech companies to take advantage and capture most of the value created from the infrastructure, like Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, and DoorDash. Well, I think he's analyzed the situation well, but uh, we are not in, a, uh, in the business of <laughs> explaining why we own a stock which we either might buy more of or sell or who knows what. So uh, uh, he's on his own, but he, he sounds like he, he's very capable of thinking it through very well himself. <laughs> um, Slavin Vukobrat writes in, Senator Josh Howley recently unveiled a new antitrust proposal that would ban mergers and acquisitions by firms with a market capitalization over $100 billion. While this legislation is unlikely to go through, increasing antitrust regulation could represent a material risk for Berkshire. As Berkshire's board already discussed what would happen to the company over the long term if Berkshire was to be prevented from acquiring controlled businesses. Well, we don't discuss that as a specific, but the board is very, very, very familiar with what Berkshire does, why they do it, you know, what, how we think in deploying capital. Uh, but we could, you know, everybody knows that if you change the antitrust laws, it can change things for Berkshire. If they change the tax laws, it can change things for Berkshire. If they, you know, there's a lot of things, and and we could we could spend hours discussing them. But in the end, you know. Is it a is it a 22.3 percent risk that you know something changes? Or, they, it, it's a good way to fill the time at board meetings. And if you're getting three or four hundred thousand dollars a year as a board director, you might you might want to spend your time doing that. But we really don't focus on that. Uh, the, the main thing about Berkshire is how they preserve the culture. How do you make sure that if you get the wrong person as the CEO, you can do something about it? That's the biggest risk a board has is if you pick the wrong CEO and I've been on 20 boards and it's happened more than once and it's sometimes it's a terrible problem to get rid of them you, you know years go by and and uh, uh, you know may, if a dissident comes in it's one thing but if you just sit there and you collect your three or four hundred thousand a year and and the chief executive keeps proposing you get increase time to time and it's worse yet if he's if he's a nice person uh, you know, doing his best. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, but we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time. We may do it on a personal basis, but we're not going to take a lot of people. And we want them to know more about what's going on with BNSF and how Katie's doing and whether the, whether the KCS thing can <laughs> injure us in any material way and so on. And we really don't, except maybe on a private side thing, we, we don't, we don't, Start talking about you know what the effects will be in 2050 if this projection or that projection is met. <laughs> Charlie, uh, nothing to add. Mm -hmm. okay. This question was sent in by Don Graham during the meeting, based on something you said earlier today, and, and he says, "Why does Warren say Berkshire's ability to ensure enormous risk quickly is a less valuable asset than it used to be?" Well, because the demand is less, I mean, uh, uh, basically on that. It, 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 if you take a period like happened after 
uh, I remember, I, I, I may be wrong on the details of this, but Cathay Pacific, for example, they couldn't land in Hong Kong, as I remember, unless they had an insurance policy by Monday of the following week. Well, we can do it. Uh, I mean, G calls me up, and, and he thinks of a price, and I think of a price. And, 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 but but we, could, we can do it. We can take the loss if it happens. They called us on the Sears Tower, I think, back then, after that. You know, nobody knew. Uh, 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 they, they, they didn't know whether you know, bombs were, might be placed all over that. So, and they wanted more insurance all of a sudden, and we gave them a price. And uh, so that thing, that, that sort of an environment hasn't really persisted. I mean, there were times, I think, perhaps AIG, when Hank Greenberg was there, he would do the same thing. Uh, but there weren't 10 or 20 people out there, and they needed big limits in some cases. And we were good for it. And uh, they knew that if they bought the insurance and, and it happened, that we, we'd write a check and it would clear. <laughs> Gene, you know, might have that. Yeah, in addition to the demand side, the supply side has become a lot more uh, competitive as well. There are a lot of people who can put up big limits, not as much as we do, but they can syndicate a program and put up a billion dollar very easily. So that competitive advantage we had, we still have, but it's no longer as big a deal as it used to be. This question comes from a shareholder in Scotland who wants to know Warren, Charlie, and Greg's views on how Kraft Heinz has performed over the last 12 months compared to the disappointing performance pre-COVID. And what are your current and longer term views on Kraft Heinz prospects? Well, I, I think that Greg's on the board, so he, he, I, I don't, I don't know that we're in a position to give advice on, on, on Kraft Heinz. We do, you know, we entered a, uh, in effect, a, uh, a semi-formal partnership with with 3G many years ago when it was just the Heinz deal, and then went on to the acquire Kraft with our partners, and and uh, uh, they've done more than. They hold up their share of things, uh, you know, uh, and we we do what we s said we do going in, which is to be uh, a financial partner, and they're more of the operating partner. Although we participate to a degree in the in any big decisions, and and they, they would listen to us, but but we're not we're not making any you know, in terms of Kraft Heinz stock. That's uh, that's up to somebody else to evaluate. Yeah, the only thing I would add, Warren, is I think we're very comfortable with the fact that they put a, a strong manager in place in Miguel, and, and he's put a very good team in place at Kraft Heinz. So we're pleased with the, the leadership and management team in, in place. They're very focused on how they're executing as they've gone forward and, and rationalizing their capital structure and, and managing down their, their debt structure. So very pleased with the path forward with the, with the existing yeah, we, team. Yeah, we feel better about the, the well, one of the, this is a more general subject, but uh, one of the subjects I might write about in one of the future annual reports is, is the problems caused by the myths that people have about their own organization. And I've seen that so many times in various forms. And to some extent, the problem has become accentuated in the last 20 or 30 years because the CEO often... Uh, and 
works with the investor relations, but they say, well, we have to have constant contact with the with the uh, analyst community. And of course, so they go on every couple of months and they repeat certain things about their company and it becomes part of uh, sort of the catechism. And nobody's going to go on two months after the CEO has said one thing and say, well, actually, that really isn't the way. <laughs> they're, they're not going to contradict themselves or change course. And so if you get these myths, uh, and they can occur in a lot of different ways. I can, I can give a lot of examples, which I won't do, as I, I t tell my friends in corporate America, I really am not going to squeal on them. But, the, but there's, there's a lot of mythology that gets handed down from one CEO to the next. Can the succeeding CEO say the guy that picked him, you know, was on the wrong course or he's been telling you something that isn't really quite true? He can't do it. You know, and then he, he starts repeating it and it's it leads to enormous errors. Uh, but it's it's hard to tell the story without giving examples that I don't like to give examples. <laughs> so we'll see when I write about it sometime. Charlie, you probably got some thoughts that we he's been a he's had a ringside seat at a lot of He's been on boards that I haven't been on. I mean, he, and it doesn't just extend to business. It, it goes beyond that into education and into, yeah. well, a lot of areas. Well, what's really interesting is the way you prattle out all the time. You're pounding back in even if it's wrong. And so one of my favorite remarks in the history of human remarks was by Sir Cedric Hardwick, who is a great British actor. And he said, I have been a great actor for so long that I no longer know what I truly think on any subject. And I think that happens to a lot of people. And it happens to virtually every politician. And it gets embedded in corporations. Gets embedded that's, that's, and, and, so and, and the trouble is now the CEOs speak out so often. So they, if they've got some crazy thing that they're saying about their company and they keep repeating it, the subordinates aren't going to contradict it. The six, you know, it, 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 and and Charlie said they just believe it after a while, and uh, it, it's it's dangerous. Yeah, and of course the young people get these ideas after their liberal educations. I think that God has given them direct insights, and they're just as crazy as the politicians. Now, there's some old people that have that too. <laughs> yeah, well, well, the old people are already crazy, but. <laughs> They're going to die sooner. So we have our old, we have our oldest insanities. The new insanities are the young, the young get. All right. This question comes from Bill Begley, who said, "Could you tell us what happened to the joint venture between Berkshire, J.P. Morgan, and Amazon to investigate what could be done about the current state of med medical health care in the United States?" The only item I read was that it was disbanded. Do you have any lessons to be learned from your effort? Well, we we learned a lot about the the difficulty of changing around an industry that's 17 percent of GDP, and where uh, uh, we learned we 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 accomplished a a lesser objective, which was probably more important to us even than either J.P. Morgan or the Amazon, because we knew less about our own system than they did. They they knew that uh, there were more centralized operations, so we we got some benefits in the sense that we looked at 60 or 70 different operations we had presently and 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 that was that's one case where uh a certain amount of centralization at, at least in certain aspects of it could save real money i mean we we found inefficiencies uh 
And like I say, we probably saved more than the other two partners because they knew, they knew their situation better. We found some dumb things we were doing. Uh, so we got our money's worth, but in terms of the big, the, of the big picture of changing something uh, that so many people have a vested interest in doing, and there's one additional factor to it which is really interesting. Uh, there's an ingenious aspect to it it goes back to a fellow named, which didn't have any direct connection, but Beardsley Rummel. And uh, nobody's ever heard of Beardsley Rummel, but Beardsley Rummel in 1941 came up with the idea of the withholding tax. So people, instead of April 15th having to write a check and thinking how much they hated their politicians and hated the government and everything else, they actually looked at it as kind of a Christmas club and there were overpayments involved and they actually got a check when the final payment came due. So when you aren't writing the check yourself, you know, you, you may know that the health benefit from your company is worth $10,000 a year to you or 15,000, it may cost them that much, but it may cost the company that much, but you don't see it. So the company pays it and most of the people in that waiting room sitting next to me, when they, they are not sitting there thinking about whether I can afford to do this, you know, or what's this going to do? They, they're, they're generally under some kind of a plan, not always, obviously, but uh, they don't think that if the company wasn't paying them that, they could pay them to that in additional compensation. But of course, the weird system is the company gets a deduction if they pay it, but if you pay it yourself on a policy, I don't believe you get a deduction. Of it. Uh, so it's it's something that's most of the people are not seeing as a cost to them, and they, they like that pretty well. No uh, kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, but that's, that's true of the federal income tax. I mean, yeah. it, it was an act of genius from the standpoint of the government to go to a withholding system. And, and if, if you didn't, just think of how many people on April 15th would have to sit down and write a pretty good-sized check, and, and they'd be mad. <laughs> they wouldn't <laughs> like it. And they don't feel it now. Uh, so we, we were up, that, you know, that's an obvious point, but you also, people like their doctor in, in general, and they don't like the, the fact that it's 17% of GDP, but one is just kind of a, you know, amorphous sort of thing, and the other is very, very real to them, and the most prestigious people in the community are on the hospital boards, and the, a lot of people that, that, are fairly happy with the system. So so we did not make inroads on that. And we are paying 17% of GDP for health care, and no major country is more than 11%. And in the pandemic, you know, we've had a death rate, that, or a death total as a percentage of population that's way higher than the rest of the world, not every single country, but way, way higher. So, it, uh, uh, you know, we've laid out more money and gotten a poorer result in terms of this particular pandemic in terms of deaths per capita. Now, that may not turn out to be the... Oh, Warren, even though you shot it and missed, you were at least shooting at an elephant. The cost of health care in Singapore is 20% of what it is in the United States, and their medical system works better. So you were shooting at a huge elephant. But as you found out, it's very hard to 
People get very enthusiastic about losing part of their income. Oh, yeah. No, I, I said we, you know, we were fighting a tapeworm. Yeah. Uh, and the economy and the tapeworm won. <laughs> yeah, the tapeworm. The tapeworm. That, yeah. That's exactly good. Wonderful phrase. The tapeworm. I'll have to copy that. Well, it wasn't a phrase we were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> um, this question comes in from Mark Blakely in Tulsa. This is for Warren and Charlie. When we discuss Berkshire, we often focus on the insurance operations and the largest non-insurance businesses, the Redwoods, as you mentioned, in 2019. However, Berkshire owns a large number of subsidiary businesses, most of which are never mentioned. Is there a point at which Berkshire becomes too large to manage, and should we have any concern over the lack of information for most of Berkshire's companies? Is there a time that could come when Berkshire's too large and complex? Well, it's too large to do certain things. That's for sure. I mean, we, you know, it's not, we can't spend our time looking for $100 million acquisitions. Uh, but uh, we have a, comp a wonderful company in Fort Worth, and, and we had a marvelous man running it, and he died recently. Uh, but uh, he ran it. He sold it to me 15 years ago, and he just basically ran it, you know, and, and I couldn't. I couldn't find my way to the company. I mean, we've got. Uh, we've got this terrific company that uh, uh, makes recreational vehicles. Elkhart, based in Elkhart, Indiana, and we bought it 15 years ago. I've never been there. You know, maybe there's some guy in a closet just making up numbers to send to me every month. But I, I, I feel I understand the business pretty well. But I've never seen it. And the fellow that runs it likes running it, and he likes me keeping my nose out of it. And He'll let Greg in a little more than he'll let me because, <laughs> but, but it, it's, we've got a system that will work with wonderful businesses and wonderful managers. And it's up to us to define them, but it's also us to, to nurture them when we find them. And, and uh, if you get somebody like Paul Andrews who ran TTI and who built it from nothing, absolutely nothing, nobody ever heard of him, and the earnings of octupled uh, during the period that he ran it for us. And he was happy. Employees were happy. He was a wonderful man. We were happy. And I would call him at the end of the year and I'd say, Paul, you know, this place is, you're shooting the lights out, everything, and you should take a raise. And he said, uh, or bonus or what? He'd say, well, we'll talk about that next year, Warren. I mean, he, did, he, he just loved, he loved the business. I love Berkshire. He loved the business, and and I wasn't going to add anything uh, by having him fill out a bunch of reports about how much how much uh, he's using in the way of of carbon or anything. You know, it's just it's ridiculous to think of a guy like Paul Andrews behaving in an antisocial manner or anything of the sort. And uh, uh, we'd love to have more of those. And obviously, as we get bigger, they get. They get harder to buy, but we've got a number in the place, and and I don't think we bought our last one over time. But I, I certainly don't see anything in the near future at all. But we're we're intensifying our interest a little bit in the ones we have by repurchasing shares. So our shareholders own more of those companies uh, every year while we're, if assuming we're repurchasing shares, which is price sensitive. Charlie. Yeah, yeah I I don't think. I we're getting too big to manage because we're different from practically every other 
big corporation in the United States in that we are so excessively decentralized. We have decentralized so much and we have so much authority in the subsidiaries that we can keep doing it for a long, long time as long as it keeps working. And I would say so far that our decentralization has caused more benefits than defects. But nobody seems to copy us. Well, but that's but, absolutely true. But I would say this, decentralization won't work unless you have the right kind of culture accompanying it. Yeah, but we do. Yeah, we do. But, and but Greg it's dependent is, on it. And, I mean, Greg will, and Greg will keep the culture. If we'd had the... If we had a, a culture of people who are trying to make a lot of money for themselves in the next five years at the top, it would not have worked. No, of course not. And the culture is part of it. But assuming we keep the culture, it, will, it can yeah. go on qu quite a ways. For a long, long time. Long, long time. In fact, it may amaze everybody. And by the so way, the Roman Empire worked, <laughs> worked as long as it did because it was so decentralized. Charlie says to me, you won't know. Yeah. <laughs> this question comes for, from Kevin Young. It's for Ajit and Greg. Warren spends his days reading, and his literature of choice is annual reports. How do each of you spend your days? What do you, re what do you read, and how do you review investment decisions? Well, uh, in my job, I spend a lot of my time reading deals that people brokers and people send us, uh, reading what they're proposing, trying to analyze them, have a, having a point of view, whether it is something that is of interest to us or not. Uh, I might add, I do not spend a lot of time reading annual reports because I'm not in the stock picking business per se. Uh, but in terms of keeping track of what's going on in the insurance business, that's what 90% of my reading is all about. Greg? Yeah. <clears throat> so... Generally in a day, what I'm going to focus on when I'm reading is uh, really around our businesses, what industries they're in. I'm trying to understand the, what our competitors are doing, what's the fundamental risks around those businesses, how they're going to get disrupted. And then it always comes back to are we allocating our capital properly in those businesses relative to the risks we're seeing both in our business and, and in the industry. So a lot of time spent on that. And as that knowledge is built at sharing it back and forth with our management teams of those uh, relevant subsidiaries and, and sort of fine-tuning it is really the, the approach. Both of these fellows can absorb information to an extraordinary degree. I mean, they have... And for one thing, they're terribly interested in it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's theirs. Uh, so uh, I'm amazed at both of them, the degree which they just sort of know everything. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but they enjoy it. I mean, it, it, they're not thinking about whether, you know, they'll get the next job at, that opens up at some huge place or anything like that. Nobody leaves us, you know, basically. The, the, the ones we, we want. And, uh, but you, you really gotta kind of be in love with your business. And, and that, that, that makes a huge difference. And that means that we've gotta have the conditions that allow that love to, to flourish, and and it wouldn't flourish under many, uh, under many with many organizations. This question comes from Robert Miles in Nebraska. The trading apps. What do you think about Robinhood and other trading apps or fintech companies enabling all ages and experience to participate in the stock market? 
<laughs> well, I'm looking forward to reading the S1 on, on uh, Robin. That's a big thing you file with the SEC when you are going to be offering securities. And uh, it's, you know, it's become a very significant part of the casino aspect, of the casino group that uh, has joined into uh, the, the stock market in the last year, year and a half. And uh, uh, I do want to see how, how they handle the source of income when they, they say they, they don't charge the customer anything. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, it, uh, uh, it would be interesting to watch how they describe it. I mean, it, but, but they... They... Uh, have attracted, maybe set out to attract, but they have attracted, uh, I think I read where 12 or 13 percent of their, their casino participants were dealing in puts and calls. I looked up on Apple, you know, the number of seven-day calls and 14-day calls outstanding, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of that is coming through Robin, and that's a bunch of people writing. They're gambling on the price of Apple over the next seven days or 40. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing illegal about it. There's nothing immoral. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think you'd build a society around people doing it. I mean, if a group of, a, a group of us landed on a desert island, we knew we'd never be rescued. And I was one of the group, and I said, well, I'll set up the exchange over here, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll trade, trade our corn futures and everything around. I think, I, I think the, uh, the degree to which a very rich society uh, can reward people who now know how to take advantage, essentially, of the gambling instincts of the not only American public, worldwide public, it... it uh, you know, it's, it's not the most admirable part of the of, of of the accomplishment, but I think what America's accomplished is pretty admirable overall. And I think actually, yeah, you know, American corporations have turned out to be a wonderful place for people to to, to uh, put their money and save. But they also make terrific gambling chips, and if you cater to those gambling chips, when people have money in their pocket for the first time and you tell them they can make 30 or 40 or 50 trades a day, and you're not charging them any commission, but you're selling their order flow or whatever. It, 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 I hope we don't have more of it, I'll put it that way. And I will be interested in reading the perspectives. Charlie? Well, that is really waving the red flag of the bull. I, I think it's just god-awful that something like that would draw investment from civilized men and decent citizens. It's, it's deeply wrong. We don't want to make our money selling things that are bad for people. But we've got the states doing it with the lottery, you know. Well, no, but that's bad too. Yeah, I understand. That's very but I mean, bad. Once that's you very bad. Personal, that's yeah. one of the things that's wrong with it. It's getting respectable to be, to do these things. The states are just as bad as Robin Hood. Well, in a sense, they're worse. 
I mean, they're they're really taxing. I know it's. it's I know. Here. I know. Yeah, they're taxing hope. Not only that, and they don't the, get much they, in the way they, of taxes they, for Mayor Charlie. They, they do they, that. The states plan. in America <laughs> replaced the mafia as the proprietor of the numbers game. That's what happened. Yep. They pushed the mafia aside and said, "That's our business, not yours." Doesn't make me proud of my government. When I when I was a kid, my dad was in Congress. They had a numbers runner in the House office building. Actually. <laughs> I will ask this question from Chris Freed from Philadelphia, and whoever wants to take this on stage. From raw material purchases by Berkshire subsidiaries, are you seeing signs of inflation beginning to increase? Let me answer that. Greg can get more. We're seeing very substantial inflation. It's very interesting. I mean, it, it, we're raising prices. People are raising prices to us. Uh, and... It's being accepted. I mean, it's not, uh, if we get, well, you know, take home building. I mean, uh, you know, the cost of, we've got nine home builders and, uh, in addition to our manufactured housing thing and, and uh, operation, which is the largest in the country. So we really do a lot of housing. <laughs> the costs are just up, up, up. Steel costs, uh, you know, just every day uh, they're, they're going up. And that, it, there, there hasn't yet been because the wage, the wage stuff follows. I mean, if the, the UAW writes a three-year contract, we got a three-year contract. But if you're buying steel at General Motors uh, or someplace, you're paying more every day. Uh, so uh, it's it's an economy really. Uh, it's red hot. I mean, and we weren't expecting it. I mean, all our companies, when they th they thought when when they were allowed to go back to work, you know, at at uh, uh, our various operations, they were, we closed the furniture stores. I mentioned, you know, they were closed for six weeks or so on average, and they didn't know what was going to happen when they when they opened. And you know, they they can't stop people from buying things. And we can't deliver them. And they say, well, that's okay. because Nobody else can deliver them either. And we'll wait for three months or something. Sort of. But the backlog grows. And then we thought it would end when the $600 payments ended. And I think, you know, around August of last year, it just kept going. And it, it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And I get the figures every week I call. Or Bumpkin calls me and we go over day by day what happened at three different stores in Chicago and Kansas City and Dallas. And... and it just won't stop. Uh, people have money in their pocket, and and they pay the higher prices. And and when carpet prices go up in a month or two, you know, we announced a price increase for April. For our costs are going up. Supply chains is all screwed up, you know, for all kinds of people. But it's a buy. It's almost a buying frenzy, except certain areas you can't buy it you, you know you really can't buy international air travel and there's uh, so the money is being diverted from a little from a piece of the economy into the rest and everybody's got more cash in their pocket than except for meanwhile you know it's a terrible situation for a percentage of the people the you know this suit i've been worn a suit you know for a year practically and 
That means that the dry cleaner nurse just went out of business. I mean, nobody's bringing in suits uh, to get dry cleaned. And nobody's, nobody's bringing in white shirts uh, to get uh, uh, place where my wife goes. Uh, it, the, the small business person, if you didn't have takeout and delivery services for restaurants, you got killed. On the other hand, if you've got takeout facilities, you've done, you know, same source sales of Dairy Queen are up a whole lot, and they adapted. And, but it's, it, it, it is not a price-sensitive economy right now in the least. And uh, I don't know exactly how when it shows up in different price indices, but there's, there's more inflation going on than, quite a bit more inflation going on than people would have anticipated just six months ago or thereabouts. Yeah, and there's one very intelligent man who thinks it's dangerous. And that's just the start. Greg, you probably are in a good position. Yeah, well, when I think you touched on it, I mean, when we look at steel prices, timber prices, any petroleum input, you know, fundamentally there's pressure on those uh, raw materials. I do think something you've touched on, Warren, and it, it, it goes really back to the raw materials. There's a scarcity of product right now of certain raw materials. It's impacting price and the ability to deliver the end product. But, you know, that scarcity factor is is also real out there right now as, as our businesses address that challenge. And it may be the some of that's contributed or uh, arisen from the uh, storm we previously discussed in Texas. When you take down that many petrochemical plants in one state that the rest of the country is very dependent upon it, we're seeing it flow through both on price but overall in scarcity of product, which obviously go together. But... Uh, there, there's there's challenges, that's for sure. This question comes from BJ Corala. What do you think of quants? Jim Simon's medallion fund has done 39% net of fees for three decades, which proves that it works. Will you consider hiring a quant lieutenant in Berkshire to work alongside with Ted or Todd? Well, I'll say no to the second part, and I'll let Charlie handle the first part. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's rather interesting. The, the the leading quant fund did fabulously on the short-term trading. They, they found little algorithms that worked to make them add predictive value. And as long as they kept working, they just kept doing it as long as the money kept coming in. When they got to using the same system just to finding some little algorithm and trying to do it mechanically for long-term stock predictions, the record was not nearly as good. And in the short-term stuff, they found that if they tried to do it too much, they destroyed their own advantage. So there was a limit on the amount they could make. But they were very, very smart. Yes, they got very rich. Very, very smart. And very smart and very rich, yes. And, and, and very and, high grade, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Jim Simons. But... Uh, we're not we're not trying to make money trading stocks. I mean, no. <laughs> the answer, we don't think we know how to do it. I mean, it isn't... If we knew how to make a lot more money make, trading stocks, we'd probably be trading stocks too. But but we we don't know how to do it, and we really don't trust anybody else to do it for us. That's simple. Um, this question comes from Richard Warner. Mr. Buffett has espoused for decades the philosophy of buy and hold or or hold forever was too short of a time period. Is it a misperception on my part, or has his philosophy changed? It seems to be a much greater turnover in the equity portfolio lately. I don't think there's that much turnover. I mean, with no, but there's too much. What? There's way too much. 
<laughs> yeah, the, it's still too much. It's, it's yeah, the same amount. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And uh, and the, the truth is, we own our businesses are equities. So we own 400 or 500 billion, in, you know, maybe more in businesses. We don't we don't turn them over at all. We don't resell businesses. We we could probably well we won't even get into that what we could do, but we we don't do it. And uh, uh, and we we do relatively little. And Charlie says we'd do better if we'd if, not if we if I'd done less. <laughs> um. This is from Daniel Gauthier. Warren Buffett's 2013 letter in the middle of page 21 made a prediction that in the next decade you'll see lots of really bad news about pensions. Given recent events like COVID-19 and that 2023 is two years away, would Mr. Buffett like to comment or revise his 2013 prediction? Did COVID-19 delay, accelerate, eliminate, or not change it? Well, in a very limited, I mean, a terrible way, covid uh, 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 improves the pension position because the fewer, the more, it's you know, it, it, uh, yeah. you have less pensioners. Uh, but the, but the pension situation is terrible in, in, in a great many states. It's it's not it's, it's not so bad at the corporate level. And there's some multi-employer plans, obviously, that have got problems. But basically, uh, it's a terrible problem for the states and of course some states. And states are going to go to Washington now and say. You know, we all want to get a lot of money because we had these terrible things happen to us during during the pandemic, which they did. But uh, some of those states have enormous pension deficits, and they'll come again if they get a if they get a check <laughs> once. I, it may turn out to be a federal obligation, de facto, or something that then uh, uh, a state situation. It has not gotten better. It has not gotten better at all, and uh, obviously, uh, and. To a certain extent, the pension managers get more and more desperate as interest rates go down. So they'll they'll listen to almost anybody that promises them. Um, they've always had that tendency anyway. But they they they'll listen to people that promise them that they're going to one way or another solve their problem for them, and uh, that isn't going to work. And so it's a big, big, big problem. And of course, the real problem is let's just take a hypothetical state that has a huge pension deficit and maybe even has a cost of living factor in it, which is going to really be a killer. And you can move if you're an individual. Charlie won't move to say that 500 million. He's not going to move to Nevada or someplace. But but you can move if you're an individual to some degree, uh, particularly if you're rich and old and retired. And, and you can actually take away an asset from that kind of environment and give it to another state that doesn't really need it as much. So you'll get adverse selection over time. But if you're a company and you put a plant there, you can't move the plant in 5 or 10 or 20 years. So as the taxable base of individuals falls down, uh, 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 simply because people select out of being a part of the population, you can't select out very well as a corporation. So you have to be very careful and think a long time before you go into some state with a huge pension deficit and a declining population because you're going to be the last man left and, you're, and the pensions won't go away. And I don't think, well, anybody with a short-term outlook doesn't worry about that. You know, I mean, you know, just get me to pass the next election and I'm all right on that one, you know. But 
the you know, we we don't want to be we're not going to steal plants that's going to be around for 50 years in some place where the population gets halved and, and the richer part gets cut you know, dramatically, even more dramatically, and we've still got a valuable plant there and we've got to keep operating. And, and we're going to, one way or another, we're going to, it's not going to be a good place to be. And we're almost out of time, so I'll make this the last question. That's a good answer, Warner. It reminds me of my old Harvard law professor who used to say, let me know what your problem is and I'll try and make it more difficult for you. <laughs> So this one comes from Jan Michael Ottlinger. It's for Warren and Charlie. I have one question which is inspired by Charlie's mantra, you have to be a continuous learning machine. So here's my question. What's the biggest lesson both of you learned during the last year? Well, my biggest lesson is to, has been to uh, listen more to tra uh, Charlie. <laughs> he, he's been right on some things that I've been wrong on. Well, I don't know. I, no. If you're not a little confused, by what's going on, you don't understand it. <laughs> it's just, no. it is, we're in sort of uncharted territory. Yeah. We enjoy, in a crazy way, actually seeing what happens. I mean, and, and, and this is, this has made us halfway through the movie much more interested than watching even more of this. Uh, this is an unusual movie, but, but we, our basic principles of, you know, we start with the fact we don't want to disappoint the people who left their money with us, and things flow out of that. And we may disappoint people that don't make quite as much money as they want, but we don't. And we've seen it, some strange things happen in the world in the last year and 15 months, and, and uh, we, we've always recognized the fact stranger things are going to happen in the future. And, and, and I would say if anything is reinforced you know, our desire, well, to figure out everything possible we can do to make sure that Berkshire is 50 or 100 years from now, you know, every bit the organization and then some that it is now. Charlie, I Well, of course, that's the idea. I think it's pretty likely to work. Yeah, well, we wouldn't have spent 55 years at it unless we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Becky, if that is that the last That's question? The last